It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's with? What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 91 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, and along with me this week, as usual, is my cohort, my co-conspirator, my co-host, and my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? The Wolf J is back. Hey, you know, as you can tell, I'm as pumped as ever for What's Real episode 91 is pumped this week as the priest werewolf from Silver Bullet itself. Hey, you know, let's get the 9-1 rolling because I know you're going to announce it. We're going to get moving because we are so jam-packed to the gills this week, like the gill man from Monster Squad. You see all my horror references in the first 30 seconds of the promo. Hey, you know, we're ready to go. Yeah, I appreciated that. I thought that was great. So uh, we uh, have a jam, jam packed show this week. Of course, all our usual NFL coverage. We're going to talk about our predictions from week six, make predictions for week seven, talk some fantasy stuff, the Steelers versus the Seahawks, and of course, our weekly power rankings. Uh, we have some dark side of the ring, Luna Vashon this week. So we're heading into some wrestling and we have a shitload of horror stuff for you guys this week. Uh, for the 31 days of Halloween, we're going to update you guys on how far we've gotten this month uh, up to this point. So uh, see if we're coming along. Are we going to hit 31 or not? We shall see. Of course, we are finishing off the second half of the Elvira 40th anniversary Shutter special with Messiah of Evil uh, from 1973 and The City of the Dead from 1960 and a brand new horror movie uh, released. Of course, this one was going to be a big deal regardless. It has polarized the entire online community seemingly. Uh, and I'm talking Halloween kills. So, of course, we got some goofs and we have much, much more. So let's just get into it. The J. Uh, this is something that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I found this randomly. This is through WrestleTalk.com. Uh, but and, and I know people make such a big deal out of Meltzer's star ratings, whether it's good or bad. Uh, me and the J definitely remember a time where his ratings meant a lot more. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, the reason why I bring this up is New Japan star, uh, of course, Okada, uh, has broken the record for having the most matches to be rated four stars by Dave Meltzer. Uh, the match that broke the record for him was his bout with Sonata last week. Uh, he now has 143 matches rated four stars, surpassing Kenta Kabashi which is amazing to think about. I know even on a wrestling level, there's a lot of people out there listening to this that are probably like, what the fuck? But uh, just Google some of the shit or YouTube it, I should say, uh, as, as far as these names go, if you're interested, um, it's worth it. But crazy to think that Okada's topped that. But I mean, yeah, there's probably more New Japan wrestling now and over the last few years then there was all Japan, I'm guessing, when Kabashi was kind of doing this stuff. That's that's what happens hey, you know, over time with the different eras. We've, we've talked about it in past podcast topics uh, with sports talk and how people compare eras and the whole Jordan versus 
Kobe or Jordan versus LeBron, especially kind of stuff. And, and we, we always say it makes great conversation and things like that. But when you go overboard with it, taking it seriously, come on, man, it's, it's just different eras and, and different, so many different factors involved. And that's the case here with the star ratings and, and how long Dave Meltzer has been doing it. And at the end of the day, that's the foundation of this whole thing. Hey, you know, you know, like you said, as wrestling fans, we always respected and enjoyed talking about Meltzer's star ratings. But again, that foundation at the end of the day, that's one man's opinion. And yeah, he's a solid source. He's a lifelong quote unquote professional wrestling journalist. I personally like Dave Meltzer. Of course, don't always agree with him by any means, but I definitely respect the man and his opinion. But all that said, at the end of the day, that's what this is. That's This is all one man's opinion of, of how he feels about these matches. But as a pro wrestling fan, you got to have fun with it. You, you got to respect it. And, and this was a big deal to me seeing that the uh, four-star match rating was surpassed by Okada uh, against Kabashi, uh, surpassing Kabashi, as you stated. And you mentioned it, hey, Ed, and that's the biggest thing is the fact that He's only 33 years old, Akata. So, uh, you know, there was some some talk on Dave Meltzer's uh, podcast, the Wrestling Observer Radio Show with Brian Alvarez, where he went on to talk about some other possible guys that can beat it. And it all goes right in with that, with the age thing, because uh, he goes on to say, Meltzer, that unless he has a serious injury, running away with it will, will be Will Ospreay, because Will Ospreay is in eighth place right now with 115, but he's only 28. And he goes on to say Nick Jackson Jackson is actually tied at 115, and he's like 40, 30, which he's really 32. But nonetheless, I mean, these guys still got a long way to go, knock on wood, all things considered with injuries, to, to really surpass uh, possibly Kabashi here. And, and we'll see what happens with Meltzer's opinion on some of these star ratings moving into the future. But a very interesting topic here for us. Yeah, I mean, I think it, he brings up a good point, but like, dude, I would never sit here and say somebody like Osprey is going to run away with something like that because like Okada is the type of dude that like every wrestler will eventually slow down. And sometimes that process is slower than others. And I guarantee you that Will Ospreay's is considerably faster than somebody like Okada just due to the style that he works and the more potential for serious injury or just, you know, like knee injuries because you're years and years and years of doing crazy high flying shit's going to take that type of toll on your body. Um, now the thing that he does bring up though, is he says somebody like Nick Jackson is tied at one fifteen, Uh, but, and then he said about his age, but like, I think Nick Jackson might even have a better chance of doing it because of how they use him in AEW. And yeah, it, it would last makes, longer. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just self-preservation and the fact that the company's working in tune with somebody like him where New Japan's not working in tune with Will Ospreay. They just need what they need and they'll move on to the next one if they have to. It's just, I mean, I know that Ospreay's not an easy guy to replace, but like everybody's fucking replaceable at the end of the day. I don't give a shit who you are. Even Okada's replaceable. Like they're all basically like that. And I don't, like, dude, Okada's really good and I'm not somebody that generally criticizes Okada. I mean, I was somebody that was saying there was a point where Okada was the best wrestler on the face of the earth. Um, but like comparing somebody like him to Kabashi to me is kind of like crazy if you think about it. Cause like I wouldn't put Okada on Kabashi's level. I mean, I know it's different what we're kind of comparing and not just the eras, but the styles and everything like I mean, I just, dude, There, I guess it's just there's a part of me, too, that holds up the All Japan stuff so high 
because it's, I mean, it really is that good. And it, and if you really spend the time on it, it's that interesting and compelling. And like, it's one of the absolute best examples of pro wrestling that we've ever seen. So like, I can't disparage that at all. Now, Okada stuff in, with New Japan, there's tons of stuff that's absolutely fantastic, but it's not nearly on that level to me, if that makes sense. No, for sure. It all goes into what I said at the the outset of this, that it's like comparing different athletes in, in different sports eras and all those different factors. Like you said, it's more than even just the eras. There's just so many different factors involved, uh, you know, and, and that was just the prime of all Japan. So to stack that up against anything is, is damn near impossible. And, and that's not what this is doing. I mean, just over the time he's racking up again, in Dave Meltzer's opinion, four-star matches and, Dave Meltzer likes a lot of Okada's matches and it adds up, you know, cause then he went on to say on the podcast, how, you know, regarding what you were saying, Hey, Ed, towards the longevity of these guys and, and he would, and, and towards anybody else other than who we named talking about any of the young bucks or will Osprey with Okada here is that he mentioned that as far as the top 20 on Dave's list that have four star plus matches in the hundreds, other than the young bucks and will Osprey are not people who will probably end up beating Okada because they're much older. So it's that age game. And and he goes on to say what you were stating. Hey, it's a good call there. But he says, yeah, Osprey's number is amazing in barring injuries, which we're talking about. But like he says, right now, Osprey already got a, has a bad back and a bad neck. And once he gets back in Japan, he'll be racking up those numbers probably. So, you know, this all goes accredited to exactly what you were breaking down. Hey, Ed, with the true longevity of guys. And, and it does appear that with the way that Nick Jackson wrestles in AEW that I, I completely concur with you. He would be more on pace than Will Ospreay just because of the much higher intensity of Will Ospreay's wrestling style, especially the more time he puts in Japan. Well, and here, here's something kind of funny to think about too. Nick Jackson can be in tag matches where he barely does anything. Right, that's what I'm thinking. And it's a yep. four-star match because of his brother. So like, and whoever, you know, they're wrestling. So that's always a possibility too. But yeah, dude, it's, it's really weird to think about it. But like, remember, I, like we kind of remember there was a time where his star ratings were just kind of used as like a guide for stuff or just things you would kind of look out from, from tape traders and shit like that. Like, so you could see the matches. Um, but like, it didn't get super toxic with Meltzer's star ratings until Twitter became the thing. Nobody right, really, of course. like it was just the guide. It wasn't like anything that people, like you might have discussions about stuff, but like not shitloads of arguing and Meltzer's a fucking idiot and all that. Like, I don't know. It's kind of goofy how toxic it's all become, because like I said, at a time, it was just a simple guide. Like it would help you decide on what tapes you wanted to get and what things you kind of wanted to look out for, or, you know, get into your collection. That's pretty much what it was. It's like so many things dealing with critics, just like the film industry. But that's what drives it. And that's what's fun is reading people's reviews and their thoughts and, and the film's star rating system. I mean, obviously, this is where this stems from to be incorporated within professional wrestling. So I'm with you, man. As long as you have fun with it and it creates some conversation, it's fine. And I thought this was a cool thing to see. And, and hey, it has us talking some kibashi on the podcast, which is never a bad thing. Yeah, it's crazy to think about and fucking 
2021 to be bringing up Kabashi on a podcast, but I'm glad we were able to do it. So, uh, but we are going to take our first uh, commercial break. We're doing it a little bit early this week because we have so much stuff to cover. So uh, just bear with us. Uh, you know, the show kind of fluctuates, I guess, week to week, the Jay, the way that we do things here, especially with kind of like Halloween being uh, somewhat of the priority, I guess, of the show. And of course the NFL coverage, which takes up a significant amount of time. So, uh, just hang in there with us guys. So we're going to take it, our hey, first Ed, commercial you said, break. You, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you said boatload. No, you're good. And, and we, we mentioned Jaws as a horror movie. So got to throw out the classic line. We're going to need a bigger boat. Hey, you Yeah, this week. Absolutely. So uh, stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this with a full lineup of NFL coverage. So uh, we'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. And we're back, and it is time to talk some NFL. Let's get into it, shall we? The J. First up, let's take a look at our week six picks and uh, our predictions, see how we did this week. Uh, first up, of course, the game that we're going to get into a little bit later on, we saw our Pittsburgh Steelers get an overtime win, 23-20 over the Seahawks to go 3-3 three and three into the bye week. So happy to see that. I know you are too, the J. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and I believe we both picked that one correctly. Yeah, we both had the Steelers. All right. Next up is another one I believe we picked correctly, and that is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the Eagles, 28-22. Yeah, the first slew we did last week, we were in coherence and it paid off. We got a lot. Yeah, that's you're right. That's right. Uh, Next up was the Jaguars getting their first win of the season. And that's one that that I don't believe either one of us. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, did you pick the Jags on that one? No, we both we both held on that because like we mentioned, okay, they've been thirty seconds, so we weren't working to pick them to win. But that was the upset to pick. It looked like they're in London. And the Packers would go on to beat the Bears to go 5-1, 24-11. The Bengals would go on to defeat the Lions, 34-11. Colts would go on to beat the Texans, 31-3. Rams over the Giants, pretty big, 38-11. The Chiefs over the Washington football team, 31-13. Vikings beating the Panthers in overtime, 34-28. Ravens. my fault. Hey, the first slew, we uh, we got all together. We picked together all the way through Washington and KC, and then we split on Minnesota and the Panthers. I had picked the Panthers, so you got the dub on that one. Okay. Uh, the Ravens won big, 34-6. to six. I believe we uh, went opposites split. on that one, and you yeah, called that Ravens. one. Yep. Uh, the Cardinals would beat up on the Browns. You called uh, that To go 6-0, and 37-14. Oh, uh, the Raiders would go on to beat the Broncos 34-24. to 24. Yeah, we, All the rest we picked together and both got. 
and the Cowboys would beat the Patriots 35 to 29 and the Titans. This is that's Except one this. I don't believe we we <laughs> no, called we, we uh, 34 to 31. So uh, how'd we do this week, the J and what's our season totals? So we're both still being pretty formidable overall. Hey, and picking a lot of games through six weeks of NFL play in the regular season here, the J on week six predictions is 10 and six and hate okay. out uh, edged me out a bit. You were 11 and five. Okay. And that brings the total tally through six weeks of regular season football going into week seven of the NFL. The J is 56 and 41 in predictions and hate it is 66 and 31. All right. I'll take it, man. It's pretty Not good. too shabby. So yeah, see how we fare next week at the end of our segment here, but let's take a quick stop over in fantasy land. The J how did we perform this week in the world of fantasy football? Was it another disappointment or are we back in the game? Start us out this week. The J how'd you do? Yeah, it's another disappointing week. Hey, and in the river's edge league, the blue dragon team that I manage, they now sit at two and four. They are in ninth place out of 10. And I lost 127.92 to shout out to old Goofy and his team, Otis, named after his old dog, rest in peace, Otis. 164.30 he had. He's now in third place. So the J is struggling for a second back-to-back week in this particular league. I was last place last year. If you remember, hey, you know, I, it took me forever just to win one game. And I was like, actually somewhat excited about that because I didn't want to go donut is how bad I was doing and what my expectations were at the time. And uh, yeah, this year, not too much better at two and four right now. All right. So uh, dude, this week was super shaky for me. It was a game that I was projected to win. Um, I was down pretty much from Thursday night. Uh, They didn't have anybody major playing, but like I was just down a handful of points and That would kind of continue through the weekend. I would kind of start to catch up moving along on Sunday. But at the end of the night on Sunday, I was down and they they had 142.80 and I had 140.60. Okay. And I had one player playing on Monday night. They had nobody. The player I had on Monday night was AJ Brown. And he was questionable up until game time because of an illness, uh, food poisoning. So that's wonderful. Uh, I was about to be super pissed off if I lost this week because I only needed three points because of receiver. And the only I even looked the waiver wire to see if there was a replacement I could get for him. And there was nobody. Um, So I ended up just saying, fuck it and playing him. Uh, he blew up, not major, but he got me 12 points. So I ended up winning 152.90 to 142.80. And the reason why that was so big is because the winner of the game this week that I was in uh, was going to actually lead the league in points for the week, which you get like a $10 bonus for. So at the very least, I'll get some of my money back. I won't have to pay the full amount this year, uh, no matter what at this point. So that's great news for me. Uh, but the bad news is here is I only move up to 12th place. I'm still tied basically for, you know, like there's one, two, three, four, five. there's six teams tied at two and four in my league. So I'm in 12th place, but I could be moving up anywhere from nine to last place at this point uh, where I sit. So I'm back in the thick of it for this week. Uh, things are definitely looking good next week here, too. So the Albany steamed hams are definitely still in it at two and four in 12th place. It's a possibility. 
All right. Yeah. You got to take it week to week. Hey, you know, just like the real NFL, basically, as yep. far as the structure goes. Uh, so, yeah, the Jays second team, uh, me of the two of us that has the two teams, uh, the Purple Headed Warriors, of course, uh, losing this week 118.14 to 147.26. A pretty big deficit there. It moves me to three and three. So I'm still 500. I'm in the middle of the pack there in sixth place in the 10 man league as well. And here's the thing this is why I saved this team for last. Hey, to talk about them a little bit here, where I could possibly, and it's the usual knock on wood, pray to the football, fantasy football gods. I could possibly have a decent turnaround because like I mentioned, number one, I'm still in the thick of it. Still kind of early here, three and three. Also my bench. So this week I had Kamara on by and I had a ton of injuries. However, I have Rashard Penny coming back. I've, I have Zach Ertz, who I'm sure anybody familiar with the NFL knows he got traded from the Eagles to the number, you know, Hey, Ed and I is right now. Number one team. And most people they're undefeated in the league, Arizona. So that might amp up his fantasy, you know, prosperity a little bit there coming from uh, Philly. So that, that I think was something that could help me. And then the guys on my bench dependent, you know how this goes with injury. If they come off injury, I got guys on the bench like George Kittle, Galladay for the Giants, Gallup, who I think is coming back soon, Richard Penny, who's coming back to a struggling, a struggling Seattle team's uh, run game. They really need him. He's coming back soon. So there is a chance that I kind of waited the rough waters here and I could get back, you know, coming full guns blazing if uh, a lot of these guys start coming off uh, injury on my bench. Think Things could be coming up for this particular team in my fantasy. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at, I'm at with my team. Like, it could go either way at this point where I could, like, just kind of blow it and the season's a waste. Or I might actually make a run for it based on some of the things that are going on around the league. Like, you know, like if uh, uh, Edwards Hilaire, the running back for the Chiefs, like if he just if he remains hurt, that's going to help me tremendously. So I have some players that are doing things. I, but dude, it, the thing that kills is like, I have Darren Waller tight end of the, the Raiders and he's killing me. And I have Dawson Knox from Buffalo who's doing great. And like he hurt, ended up hurting his hand this week during the game, but like he's getting closer and closer to starting over Waller at this point for me, because at the very least he gets a touchdown pretty much every week. Waller gets right. like, eight points of hard fought points, like no touchdowns, no, not it's like, it's brutal catch here and there. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it becomes annoying with some of these guys because you're like, dude, he was my second round draft pick. So that's the only reason I could justify continuing to start him, other than the fact that he's supposed to be good, but he's not showing the promise that the other players are showing. So it's like, do you make the, and I guarantee you the, the week I make the move, that's the week he has 40 points. Man, that's the thing. I mean, it's why we, we we all deal with the same kind of decisions within your fantasy league. So you can't complain too much about it because that's what everybody deals with. But I'm with you. You know, it's, sometimes you, you you just go with the wrong guy and that's the choice you make and you got to eat it and it, it beats you up. That's that's why, like I always say, hey, Ed, like this week I just got crushed. But honestly, you never like getting crushed. But in the grand scheme of things, I prefer that over a heartbreaking loss, like those games where you lose by well, a point and things like that. Dude. How pissed would I have been if I would have lost this week? Because that, exactly. I could have been the you would highest have had the scoring second team most, in the league. I got right the, or yeah, first I, most. Yep. It, 
And it's like, and I lost the week where I would have literally beat every other team in the league except for the one that I played. So like that shit that is mind boggling. It happens yeah. a lot and it's, it's super frustrating. And that's the shit that makes you give up on a season. So at least I had that going for me this week. So I'll take it. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, and dude, more good news this week. So we, we did manage to get some wins in fantasy football and the Steelers managed to get a very much needed win on Sunday night against the Seahawks, 23 to 20, a really close game, a really crazy game that we'll obviously get into. So as we do here on the show, we do the good, the bad and ugly from the game. So the J uh, I imagine there's probably a lot of good this week. So uh, let me knock one out uh, first here. Cause I'm sure it's probably on yours as well. So sure. uh, Najee's fucking killing it. Again, another really good week. He had 81 yards rushing. He also had 46 yards receiving. Um, he had a touchdown. Uh, he's doing it regardless of the protection that he's getting. So this dude is going to be a stud down the road. It's just a matter of time. Um, but, you know, it, it, he could be a dangerous player. They're starting to do a lot of different stuff with him. And I think that even for, especially for a rookie, uh, dude's responding to everything pretty well. Great call. Hey, you know, loving Najee, looking beautiful. Definitely was in my good, of course. So I'll throw the probably second one that anybody would pick here anyway, the one-two punch that they were. That was the offensive good. I'll go straight to TJ. TJ Watt pretty much almost yep. single-handedly winning this game, at least at the end in an overtime there. Uh, that got to be the first good, hey, yo. And, dude, this just – I know this is a broader topic besides the the game itself – but I was looking over the weekend at some stats and some things, some shit that I'm going to bring up throughout here. But uh, one of the things I wanted to mention here is right now, I know it's still early, obviously. So that's, you know, I've got to make that caveat. But to me, there's only three dudes right now in the NFL that are legitimate defensive player of the year caliber guys. Um, of course, TJ Watt is one of them. Uh, Trayvon Diggs from the Cowboys is another one. Dude has like seven interceptions in like five, six games. Yeah, so, ridiculous this year. Uh, and he leads the league in interceptions. And of and this is weird that I'm saying this, but Miles Garrett is the, from the Cleveland Browns is the only other person that's even on that level. He leads the league right now in sacks. Um, dudes do and, and tackles for loss, I believe, too. Um, but those are the only three in that category. But, dude, I, you know, I got to agree with you there. TJ Watt worth every penny that we've given him in his new deal. So uh, good call there in the good section. Another one for me is still more improvement being made by the offensive line. Uh, now, this is going to work into a bad that I have later on, but I will say this. Uh, for the sixth game of the season, it's nice to see that the offensive line is gelling in certain ways and it's kind of making the offense, you know, function significantly better than it's been. That was one of mine too. Hey, Ed, and it goes hand in hand with your first choice with Najee. You know, he's not going to be running as good as he's had the last couple of weeks without the offensive line finally starting to gel a little bit and, and show improvement from the beginning of the year where they're really stinking it up overall. So definitely want to take that and throw it into the good. Uh, my next good would be a guy that we have shouted out uh, while here. You had a very interesting and amazing stat regarding him last week. And that's of course, Steeler kicker, Chris Boswell and nailing the game winning field goal, 37 yards in overtime. Got to throw him in the good. 
Yeah, I agree. Uh, Boswell's definitely in there. One of the most underrated players on the team. Uh, one of the most important players on the team, especially this year, because he's yeah. he's come up big time for them. So, so I definitely agree. Uh, another player that I wanted to give some love to uh, is Deontay Johnson. Uh, dude starting to look like he's finding a place in the offense that's more consistent than where he's been like over the last year or so. Uh, he did have a drop this week, and it didn't bother me at all because he was actually trying to make a major play. Uh, that wasn't necessarily as much his fault uh, as the ones that we saw last year. He's done a really good job. He's starting to become a player that uh, opposing defenses really need to target and and kind of put a spotlight on. Otherwise, he's going to kill you at some of the worst times. And again, even though this is uh, something I'm bringing up in the good, it's also going to bring up something in the bad for me later on. But I wanted to give Deontay Johnson some love there too. All right, my last good hate you to, to wrap up the Jays good on the breakdown analysis of Steelers Seahawks was just to be thrown in the offense as a whole in this game. They remained pretty hot most of the game. And in this game, stemming off of what they kind of put together with the game plan last week against Denver, a good mix of run and passing. And they were just looking balanced. And, and as you mentioned, the offensive line gelling a bit more. And we're kind of being a little bit more confident in them. Eric Ebron doing a few things, not dropping the ball like stone hands for necessary hey, roughness. So. Hand it off to him if that's what it takes. I don't give it yeah. like they did in this game. Do that then. Exactly. If you can, dude, if Just, you can use him as like you can, an, Eric. If you can use him like an oddly tooled tight end wide receiver running back type player, then fucking do it. I've, you might as well get something out of him at this point. Exactly. So, yeah, so just the overall offense uh, looking, you know, like they're keeping the momentum that they kind of developed in last week's win against Denver still going. So, but nonetheless, we'll get into the, the bad and ugly and beyond uh, when you wrap things up, hey, because this game still did go into overtime and could have yep. definitely went either way. Yeah, just one more thing for me, and it's it's almost consequential, of course. We're getting a buy at the right time of the season. Uh, it's almost the middle of the season. Uh, there are some injured players and guys who could use, uh, you know, definitely a week to rest and, and kind of take it easy. And so I'm, I'm very happy with that right now with the Steelers at three and three. Yeah, that's a great call. We talked about that off air. Like that just really worked out with where they're at in the season. I think it's a perfect placement for for a buy. And that's just fate itself. You know, there's no yeah. rhyme or reason for when you get the buy. So it worked out right now. And I think that I'm right with you. I think it's a good week for them to, to have the buy. Absolutely. So that was the good this week. So the Jay, let's get down to the bad. Why don't you start us off this week with your first bad? So the first bad would just have to be, you know, again, with the secondary and just the past defense, uh, you know, Geno Smith, however you feel about him, his first start in what he had seven years and still yeah. able to move the ball on us and, you know, get in a position, as we mentioned, to, to win the game, taking it to overtime and, and, you know, more stuff we'll get into, but that's, that's where I would start with the bad. I just didn't like seeing uh, Geno Smith, some of the stuff he did. And I'm, I'm not saying he blew it up, you know, looking at the stats and things like that, but, but still, I just, I, I'd like to see our secondary, you know, a bit tighter, uh, all things considered. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to my first one. It, it kind of plays right into that. And it's first up poor middle linebacker play. And I'm talking about Schobert and I'm talking about Devin Bush, who to me has not really gelled into a player that is worth them moving up in the draft to pick number 10. 
Um, and I don't really think he even warrants necessarily a second contract from the Steelers or even them picking up his fifth year because I just don't think I think this season's been extremely telling and he's looked horrible most of the season. Uh, but yeah, the middle linebackers from us have, have been a really bad thing for us this year. And it kind of leads into an overall problem that the team had that you were kind of talking about the J. The reason why Geno Smith was doing what he was doing is because our defense suddenly forgot how to tackle this game. They looked that like shit bad. on that front. It was really bad and it was really noticeable. And I don't know what the problem is there, but they need to get that fixed immediately. Yeah, I'm with you. That's important. Uh, moving on with my bads. Hey, you know, as you may have noticed when we were talking about some props to the offensive offensive line and Najee, uh, one person that I personally didn't mention was Roethlisberger. That's why he's in my bad. He's not in the ugly and it was borderline, but just the fact on still just some of the stuff he does. And I, I, I think it's more of an intangible thing. And in my heart than anything, you know, with getting the win this week and all that is just I don't have that confidence I typically do in Ben, even going back to last year. Uh, need we say, you know, stemming from the 11-0 start and then the shit show that occurred after that. But he had the one play, of course, where he did his infamous, uh, or should, should say famous, pump faking, and he pump faked like three times, but then he ended up fumbling the football. And yep. just different things in, the, in this game with Big Ben that I, unfortunately I felt, uh, in my opinion, I had to kind of place him in the bat here. Remember how I was saying earlier about the offensive line still improving, and I said that's in the good, but it's going to bring up something in the bad? There, there we go. So I that's, put him dude, up, you knock him down. Ben, even with his line improving, is not looking much better. Like, we're seeing his teammates that's step up was to the plate. And, 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 like, that's what, like, he's seeing players step up around him, but he, we're basically seeing maximum Ben at this point. And, also, remember how I said about Deontay Johnson in the good, but that's going to bring up a bad later. What well, the reason why I said that is because, dude, do you know how much better Deontay Johnson would be with a quarterback that could actually throw the ball significantly downfield? It matters. Oh, he's and, fast, man. He's yeah, fast, and it's it's kind of holding back him right now. And also, and I don't know. I'm just throwing this in the bad because it kind of lumps in here too, and I don't really understand what's going on. But maybe you can shed some light on this for me, the Jay. Can you tell me in your mind or, or how you feel about this? But like, I feel like Ben and Claypool are never on the same page, and I just have a vibe. I might be wrong, but it just doesn't feel like it's Claypool to me. It feels like it's Ben every time. Ben throwing to the wrong fucking spot. And it's like guys throwing their hands up in the air. It's, it's frustrating. Yeah, there was there was one in particular play where Claypool like did it, it was one of those ones he didn't even turn around, you know. And Roethlisberger yep. had the ball in the air and things. I mean, the, the chemistry is definitely not there. Where at times last year, again in that that big run, uh, three quarters of the way through the season, and the the big eleven and zero run in the twenty twenty season, where the chemistry did seem there, and, and it just you know made it look like Claypool was going to be the next big NFL receiving star as well. And I think he still has that potential. But to your point, they're kind of all over the place. And that's why I was placing Ben in the, the bad part of this breakdown because it just did not seem like he was 100% there. Again, he got the win. He did some good things. He aired it up. Um, you know, another thing just to throw in here, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, I wanted to ask you, hey, Ed, because I don't know exactly the complete health status of Washington, but they had Ray Ray McLeod play almost three times the amount of snaps than, than Washington. Yeah. And I was curious Dude. about that. 
Yeah, I guess maybe the only reason I could think of is because there's potentially like they're uh, slowly bringing him back from the injury. That was was my assumption. But but now now listen to this. This is kind of crazy. I saw this. So I like to look at this every week. You know, they have the pro football focus stuff, which is basically all analytics. Okay, I don't put everything on it, but I do look at it because I think it tells you somewhat of a story about what's going on. But. Overall, top five, regardless of position, there were some Steelers this week. Now, Kendrick Green, their center, was a 68.7 for 75 snaps. Guard Trey Turner was a 69.1 with 75 snaps. Uh, Somebody I'm skipping over, I'm going to come back to. Guard Kevin Dotson was a 70 in 75 snaps. And Pat Fryermuth leading the team with 74.1 with 45 snaps. So, like, Fryermuth, Ben said that he wanted to get Fryermuth included in the games more, and they definitely, it looked like it this week. He did some more. Yeah. Uh, But the player, now this is wild, dude. Now, this is the player that I skipped. With eight snaps in the game, he got a 69.9, and that's James Washington. Like, that's pretty wild, to get mm-hmm. that type of a score for eight snaps. So like there you it kind of tells you if you're paying attention that all indicates that there are there's something coming for James Washington here once he kind of gets healthy, like he's going to get some work especially with Juju being out. Uh but again, I don't know how effective he's going to be with a quarterback that can't sling the ball down the field. It's a continuous problem, dude. Like I'm not trying to shit all over Ben but this is a team that's trying to operate with Ben and his limited capacity. And how far is that going to get us? Maybe it gets as far. I don't know because I don't know how much these things are going to gel further. Like the line, maybe Najee Harris looks like he's playing out of his mind for five weeks and the Steelers go on a bit of a run. But have you looked at the Steelers schedule coming up? Because it's really like like when they come back, they're playing the Browns, but Cleveland, at Cleveland, but it's Cleveland though with a bunch of injuries, and Baker Mayfield might not even be playing by then. So who knows what's going on with that? Then you have some really lot like they got the Bears and the Lions and stuff. Like it's it's an easy way for the Steelers to potentially kind of get two or three more wins on a clip with playing mediocre. No, that's a good point. Yeah, I thought we were talking later, later down the line. You know, we're oh yeah, later. Yeah, that's brutal. But before we get into that, but well, and that's a great point because yeah, the next three weeks that's important to rack up some wins there when you need, you know, when you have when you can and you pretty much have to. Yeah, so there we are. There now, let's just get into the ugly this week. I doubt both of us have a lot, so uh, start us off in the ugly category, the J. Got to go with the end of regulation. Hey, uh, pretty much blaming the refs. That was ugly. that dude. Okay. This is pretty common knowledge for most NFL fans and players and coaches and what have you. And that is the fact that a play that is good, like where they're going to take a look at a replay and, and make sure they got it right. It's always done before there's another play on the field. And that was not what was done at the end of the game on Sunday. Um, they gave the Seahawks every possible you know, possibility to win the game with maneuvering the shit around. And we need to make sure it was a catch when it was abundantly clear that it was a catch. They did. That's if that's something you have to go back and take a look at, then there's more problems 
than just the player, what's going on right there. So that was a complete fucking mess. I still haven't, I'm sure we'll probably be hearing uh, any moment now what uh, Mike Tomlin's fine was for that because I didn't see anything about it. And I'm sure there's probably a fine coming down for what he said after the game, but he's right. It was an embarrassment. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen him this mad. <laughs> you know, maybe a couple other times. Rightfully so, too. Storied career, but rightfully so. Yeah, it was just ridiculous because like we mentioned, we did win the game. So that's huge because if we lose that game, and that was such a big game this early in the season too, such an important game uh, to lose over that would have been just brutal. Luckily, we didn't, but it's still the point of it. And, and Tomlin definitely had the right to be as pissed off as he was. And the only other ugly I had hey, you know, was just kind of an off-kilter thing because, again, trying to get some talk on the show or at least uh, some sort of a bullet point here uh, was, of course, just a really scary injury. Uh, to the Seattle player. Oh, yeah. Um, you always hate seeing that. The good news is, as they brought up on the broadcast, that is like the the new protocol for that kind of injury where they have to, you know, get the helmet off and put them in the, you know, the whole strap down situation and cart them off. So, it, it you know, knock on wood that he he's not as bad as he looked, basically. And, and that's basically what they said. They got the report from the hospital that he was moving all extremities. So shout out there. But yeah, just an ugly uh, moment and scary moment more than anything. Yeah, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly there. The only other terrible or ugly, I should say, that I have this week uh, is just a terrible tackling. There's no excuse for it. I know I already yeah, brought it up. It's It's the only thing that I really had here. Like the defense needs to do better. Uh, and I'm going to give them sort of a pass, too, because I feel like they've kept us in a lot of games. And they played exceptional towards the end of the game. They were the reason most likely why we won this game, because they kept putting in the stops when it really counted. So kudos to them for that. But they definitely need to sew up the tackling problem. It's a good call. Any other uglies from you or things you'd like to add to Jay? No, I think that was a good thorough breakdown, Hey, you know, as we do. But, yeah, big game, a crazy game. Uh, typically, you know the Jay. Sunday nights are tough. I was like, you know, I, I might have been falling asleep. This game, I wasn't even close. I was up and about. I was, like, doing push-ups and shit. I was ready to go. This was a great, <laughs> crazy, crazy game, an OT Sunday night prime time game, and getting the dub was the biggest, you know, biggest positive there. So I'll take it. But, yeah, I think we broke it down pretty good, Hey. You know? All righty. So now let's move on to the time I kind of wait for each and every week here. The power rankings, the what's real power rankings after week six. What's real NFL power rankings. And the J, this is this is weird. No need for any orchestras or bands yet this week at all, uh, at least not for me. Because starting out this week at 32 is without a doubt the 0-6 Detroit Lions. Yeah, we're getting to the point. You got to go by records. You know, that's what's fun about the power rankings. It's almost like the AP polls and things. You can add in your opinion. Uh, you know, a team might have lost a, a tight game in overtime to a really tough team or something. So even though the record's a certain way, you put them in a certain slot and things like that. But with an 0-6 team and the only 0-6 team in the league right now, you got to start there. So just to do something different as we have tradition on the show for the last place team and the Jays singing, we got Detroit. So it's going to be a Motown Moop, 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 Detroit, Detroit at 32. I agree. Hey, yo. at 31 this week, I have the one single win team, the Houston Texans. All right. I'm right behind you as we do here with the piggyback and I placed the Giants at 31 and the Texans at 30. Okay. At 30 this week, 
Uh, I don't know if you want to bring them in yet, but this is where I have the Jacksonville Jaguars. Hey, home road hill, down on a hill, going down to Jacksonville. Got the Jacksonville and Joe Bob and the the Gators in there. Hey, y'all. Appreciate it. I had the I so, had the Jags at twenty nine, so it worked out perfect. And twenty nine is where I have the Giants, and I don't know if you want to bring in the orchestra because I'm going to probably need them for twenty eight anyway. Harold, yeah, my wife was yelling at me. She's like, "All these musicians at the house now," but they're I'm getting close to these guys. Hey, yeah, so we'll bring in Harold here. Come on, Harold. <clears throat> New York Jet Sock. With the punk band, hey, so tradition on the What's Real podcast as I have the Jets at 28. So a little bit of uh, shuffling on our opinions, but all the same teams from 28 to 32 because we know what the fuck we're talking about. Absolutely. And, dude, this is crazy to think about. But this week at 27, boy, how they've fallen, the Miami Dolphins. That is a great minder, as we call it. Yep, it's sad. Dude. We love Brian Flores, but, I mean, they lost. Who might lose? He might lose his job, too, which is even – that's ridiculous, but it's very possible at this point with how yeah, bad this team's looking. Crazy. Looking bad. At 26 this week, this is where I have the Washington football team. All right. I have them at 25. At 26, I have the Falcons. And Falcons are who I have at 25. Yep, it's uh, swappage. At 24 this week, this is where I have the Indianapolis Colts. Okay, they're coming up for me, but at 24, the J put the Eagles. All right. At 23 this week, I have the New England Patriots. And at 22, that's where I have the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay, I think it was something in what I was seeing in the game. Hey, you know, at 23, I put the Seahawks. And uh 22, I have the Colts. Okay. At 21 this week, a team that didn't even play this weekend, this is the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, they're coming up for me, but not yet. This is where I put the Patriots. Okay. At 20 this week, I, I kind of loosened up on them a little bit, but I'll be honest with you. This is where I put the Seahawks. Uh, and anything worse, they're really going to start dropping because they don't look like that great of a team. They played good at times, and I thought Geno Smith played a lot better than what he was this weekend, but that's probably not going to last very long. Yeah, it's something that we neither of us would have predicted, you know, going in preseason week one. But that's what the NFL is about, the power rankings and injuries and losing rusts can do. Who do you got this week at 20, the J? I put the Bears at 20. Okay. At 19 this week, falling very, like they got into the top 10 and just immediately plummeted. This is where I have the Denver Broncos. I have the Broncos at 19 as well. At 18, another same thing. They hit the top 10 and just plummeted. This is where I have the Carolina Panthers. Okay, I have the Panthers at 17, and I put the, you uh, already named them, the 49ers at 18. And I put the team you already named, the Bears, at 17. And at 16 this week, I have the Minnesota Vikings. Great minder. All right. At 15 this week, this is where I have... The quickly arising, all of a sudden, hometown Pittsburgh Steelers. Another great minder. Yep, brought them up from the 20s. I have them in the top 15 at 15 as well. Hey, you. At 14 this week, I have another team that did not play. This is where the Saints are this week. Okay, I had the Saints at 13, so shouting that out. And then at 14 is where I dropped after another loss, the Cleveland Browns out of the top 10. Okay, at 13 this week, I have the Kansas City Chiefs. Moving up quickly, though. All right, shout out your 12. Hey, I'll get us back on track. And that's where I 
That's where I have the Cleveland Browns falling out of the top 10. I put the Raiders at 12. And I have the Raiders as the last team out of the top 10 for me at number 11 this week. Okay, that's where I place the Bengals. All right, so top 10 time, here we are. And at 10, I'm putting them solely because of their big win this week. This is where I have the Tennessee Titans. Great minders. It's felt the same way. I got them in the top 10 with a huge win. We'll see where they go. But yeah, I think they belong in the top 10 right now after that performance. At number nine this week, after a loss, I didn't drop them terribly, uh, but they got dropped terribly. This is where I have the Los Angeles Chargers. I'm right with you. That's a great minder. Chargers at nine. At eight, I have a team you already named. I'm higher on them, uh, I guess, than you. Uh, But at four and two, after a big win, this is where I have the Cincinnati Bengals at number eight. Not bad, hey. They're good. I, I struggled with that. Um, and then this is a team like Touche that, that I definitely am feeling higher than you. I have them a lot higher. This is probably our biggest discrepancy this week. But I still think they're formidable, man. They've been struggling. But at eight, I placed the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, I just their their records three and three. They're making their way back up. So that's why I didn't. Yeah, I kind of shot you know, them up. But that's a good yeah. good line of thinking. And dude, how's this for wild? But number seven this week for me is the Buffalo Bills. Wow. I'm, After I'm right losing to the Titans. Yeah, as we'll do. Um, pretty close. I have the Bills at six, and I actually have the Packers at seven. And I have the Packers at six, tying up there uh, to get to our top five. So the J, who do you got this week at number five? The top fives will be and always is interesting week to week. So this is basically the week seven power rankings, and for number five for the J. They're looking good. What can you say? The Dallas Cowboys at five. All right. This week at number five, this is where I have the Los Angeles Rams. Okay, I'm higher on them than you, which we will see. At number four, I'll just throw it at you. Hey, yeah, this is where I have a team I've been behind with their, I always use the word with them, their intangibles. I have the Ravens looking good this year, man. And at four this week, I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So right, the Jay, so our, our top three is a little bit different. Who do you have this week at number three? That's where I put the Bucks. This is where I have the Dallas Cowboys. Wow. Who do you got at number two, the Jay? Still sticking with the Rams. Kept the Rams high, too. So you might as well give us your one because we know who it is. It's the Arizona Cardinals. Yeah, we were bookended, which makes sense. The 6-0 and team is number one, and the 0-6 team is number 32 on the What's Real Power Rankings. And that's the way I have it as well, because this week at number two, I have the Baltimore Ravens, and at number one, the Arizona Cardinals. So it's getting interesting, man, to be honest with you. This is the Ravens are shaping up to be, I think, definitely better than I thought, and, and you were championing them. And I bet you you'd think they're better than you even thought at this point. They are because you, you look at it. You know, I know what you said towards the beginning of the year where, where the really big factor. And and we said it's not like it's the end all be all football the way it is. You know, three, three sides of the ball, basically, with special teams, offense, defense, 11 on 11, just a different setup for sport. There's a lot to it is my point. But Lamar Jackson. And if he's playing like the way he's playing, that whole team what can you say? seems to ride with it. I mean, what can you say? MVP candidate? You know, wouldn't argue with that. Yeah, dude, they've gotten the passing game down. Uh, he is a dude when they're passing the ball, 
he's the most impossible player to stop because he could basically do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And it's like, good luck trying to stop him because you're, you're either not going to have the personnel to stop the receivers or not the personnel to stop him. So either way, you're kind of fucked. It creates a major problem. Uh, and dude, there's no doubt about it. The Ravens are super dangerous as we that's, move on here. That's the thing. That's where he saves them. Hey, Ail, because we, we talked about that a big, you know, gl- glaring black eye on the team was losing all their running backs, all their starting running backs. All three of them got hurt to the point D- that hey. Le'Veon Bell scored this week. So. You know, dude, how's this for for kind of crazy to think about? Uh, two teams that do have running back issues, and I'm talking about the Ravens, and I'm also talking about the Buffalo Bills. It's different. The Buffalo Bills don't have a bunch of guys hurt, but they also don't have like one guy. They have to like work through a committee to kind of get what they need. Um, but isn't it funny that they both both teams have quarterbacks, though, that double for a running back and, and they're both vastly different, you know, like one's huge and he can run and the other one's not huge and he could fucking run. He's just so, so dynamic. Yeah, yeah it, it's pretty wild to see players like this in the NFL, but it, it makes the game that much more exciting because I definitely like watching him and Josh Allen. So uh, it, it's really cool. But. Let's get into week seven, the J. We got some predictions to make. First up, let's just mention this. The Steelers are on a bye, so there will be no Steelers prediction or coverage next week uh, on the, the NFL segment. So just to get that out of the way. First up, though, we have the Broncos taking on the Browns in Cleveland Thursday night. The J, who do you like in this one? It's getting tough with the Browns because we said, you know, we give them props when it's deserved, but the injury bug of the NFL, Baker Mayfield with an injured shoulder, Kareem Hunt going down, uh, Chubb going down, you know, that double combo running back. I think, you know, I think they're both available for this game, but it's a short week from Sunday to Thursday with a beat up team. We saw how the Broncos were capable, man, it's a tough call, but fuck the Browns. As we say here, Broncos. Yeah, I'm going with the Broncos too, man. I just think that the Browns are really banged up and it's a short week. And I'm thinking that's going to be a a pretty big issue for them. Not like the Broncos are lighting the world on fire, but at the very least, they have somewhat of a defense that you're going to have to contend with. So uh, I'm going with the Broncos on this one too. Uh, Next up, we have the Washington football team going into Green Bay to play the Packers. I don't know about you, the Jay, but I think the Packers win this one pretty easily and go on a six and one. Yeah, I got to make it short and sweet there. I think Packers all the way against a struggling Washington team. The next game has potential here to be the game of the weekend. And that I'm talking about the Kansas City Chiefs going into Tennessee to play the Titans. What do you think about this one? This one is tough. Hey, you know, we both talked about it. Like I said, I use my power rankings as a reference when we get into the predictions. And with that said, still kind of thinking the Chiefs are turning it around. The Titans, however, kind of doing the same thing, struggled here and there. But of course, the the beast of a running back with Derrick Henry just having a destructive game and getting the big W over the, this past weekend. All that said out loud, hey, you know, through it all, I'm sticking with my choice in my power rankings with the chiefs going KC. Yeah. I, you know, when I was thinking about this a little bit, but I'll be honest with you. And this is, this is the only issue that I have with this one. Um, I don't think the chiefs defense can stop anything. 
So I'm going with the Titans on this one. I think I would have picked the Titans even if they would have lost this week to Buffalo. But it it's just and trust me, I don't I still buy in with the Chiefs. I just think it's a bad matchup for them this week. So I'm gonna go with the Titans. Uh next up we have the Falcons going into Miami to play the Dolphins. The Jay, I have about zero faith in the Miami Dolphins at this point. So I'm gonna go with the Falcons here. Yeah, I'm with you. This is some uh bowels, as we call it, of the Woodsville power rankings teams. So with that said, since it could go either way, and I did kind of go with the Dolphins here and there before they're really looking like they're struggling, I completely agree, but I'll split here. I'll, I'll take the Dolphins. All right. Next up, we have a game that, uh, hmm, what's the best way I could describe this game? This is like a trap game kind of a thing here. I'm talking about the Jets uh, going into New England to play the Patriots, and I feel like it is sort of a trap game for New England. They have not looked good recently, but I think ultimately the Patriots will kind of win out on this one. What do you think? Uh, it's at AFC East, man. We know how that division is. They're, they can get each other's numbers, so that's a good call with the trap game. Nonetheless, though, it's it's still Belichick. I think he figures out a way to beat the Jets uh, this Sunday. I'm, I'm going with the Pats. All right. I'm good sorry. Who did you pick their head? I'm marking them. Not, Pats, definitely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have the 3-3 three and three Carolina Panthers going to New York to play the New York football Giants. Um, I think Carolina kind of gets back on track with this one. I don't believe in the Giants at all. I think they're going to continue to falter. They've had a ton of injuries. They're not going to overcome that. The Panthers uh, get on the better side of 500 and go 4-3 and three after this one. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I'm going with the Panthers. It's just a shame that McCaffrey – a little bit banged up again uh, this year. But again, life of an NFL running back, I don't think it's it's a ridiculous injury. I think it's more of a nagging one. But nonetheless, wanted to mention that. Uh, all that said, though, Panthers all the way against the Giants. All right. This might seem strange to people, to Jay. You might not think it's strange because we talk about this stuff every week. The next game is the Cincinnati Bengals versus the Baltimore Ravens. And the strange thing that I was talking about, I think this is one of the hardest games to call of the weekend. What do you think on this one? Really tough call, really good game. Looking forward to it. Uh, it I, I like the the week. It's like a different feel as an NFL fan when your team's not playing, they get the bye week, you know, you can kind of relax. I'm going to have the red zone on and I'm really looking forward to this game. Uh, as you mentioned, man, really tough call. But as I've been doing, man, I, th I think it's a toss-up. It goes either way, but I've been going with the Ravens. I'm going to stick with that. I'm going Ravens. I don't know why, but I just have a feeling that the Bengals are going to get them in this one. All it's right. going to be close. I, I think it's, you know what, the thing is, it's it's the kind of thing where they've been playing really good every week, and so have the Bengals. I don't know if the Ravens are up to the challenge this week. And, I mean, they're going to be playing a team that's pretty physical. Joe Burrow isn't easy to deal with either. Um, I, I could see Baltimore having kind of an off game here. That's why I say that. So I'm going to go with the Bengals on that one. Uh, next up, we have the Eagles and the Raiders uh, in Las Vegas. Uh I'm going to go with it. I think they're going to start playing better because of the new coach and the fact that Gruden's gone. So I'm going to go with the Raiders in this one. 
I'm with you on that. I went with the Raiders. You know, Philly it has different potential, but you can see they're making moves. I, I mentioned some of the trades they made and, and Zach Ertz, and I'm not saying it's Zach Ertz in his prime or anything like that, but again, they're they're making some moves. They're shuffling in, in the middle of the season here, so uh, you know that that could go either way. It could mean they're they're trying to to make some moves for the right reasons, or they may possibly just need to shuffle some things. Either way, I'm with you in this one in Vegas. I'm going the Raiders. Next up, I don't even think much needs to be said for this one. The Rams in L.A. hosting the Detroit Lions, who will be 0-7. I'm going with the Rams. Yeah, we can't say that the Lions at 0-6 get the Motown treatment here at What's Real and are 32nd to a team that I placed second. (laughs) I don't think that's this kind of upset. Rams all the way. Next, we have the Texans going into Arizona to play the Cardinals. It's kind of like the same as the last one, Jay. I don't know if, if you're thinking big upset here, but I'm definitely going with the Cardinals to go 7-0. and No, the, the NFL is not college. Obviously, it can happen any given Sunday and all that. Cardinals aren't losing to the Texans this Sunday. Also, we have the Bears taking on the Bucks. Another one here. Uh, I think the Bucks win this one handily. Yeah, the Bears, we say, it's kind of all over the place. You know, some weeks they could – really hang other weeks they're they're just a mess uh this is a week with brady and, and tampa playing at home that i think they're gonna you know pretty like you said pretty handily take them i'm going bucks we have on sunday night the colts taking on the 49ers in san francisco uh this might surprise you the jay but i'm gonna go with the colts on this one all right yeah we're splitting i'm definitely going niners uh colts I don't know, have potential against the Niners. Uh, Niners, just like last year, kind of getting bit by the injury bug again. And, you know, bad quarterback situation right now with that. Not having my man from Fantasy Kittle and different things. But nonetheless, I'm I'm thinking the 49ers at home go over the cold Sunday night on primetime. Then on Monday night, we have the New Orleans Saints going into Seattle to play the Seahawks. Uh, Jameis Winston's going to have a massive game, and uh, the Saints are going to roll in this one to go four and two. Saints go marching on. Hey, y'all, I'm right with you there. So there you go. That's our uh, power rankings and our picks. Uh, Hope you guys enjoyed that. But we have to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, me and the Jay are going to be talking some dark side of the ring about Luna Vachon. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real Podcast. Jeez. The What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 92 of the What's Real Podcast. It's more deep and exclusive full coverage of the National Football League. And we'll be taking a look at the latest episode of Dark Side of the Ring, all about Rob Black and XPW. And the Halloween fun continues as we check out the brand new remake of the Slumber Party Massacre. And we look back on our 31 days of horror to see how far Hey Ed and the J have come during the month of October. And hey everybody, this is Herman James with the Watch Real Podcast. And I'm here to talk about Goose Your Goose for the 92nd episode of the show, where the guys talk about things like Texas brawls over French fries and Hooters Girls bums. All that and much more on episode 92 of the What's Real Podcast.
barely cheese. Uh, and it's time to get into some dark side of the ring, specifically the episode, The Many Faces of Luna Vachon. For those who might not know, Luna Vachon is a former professional wrestler and manager who, you know, would go on to have a pretty well-remembered time period in the business. Um, she faced uh, mental illness and addiction issues throughout her long career. Um, one of the big revelations for this one for me was that she was uh, adopted, which was something that uh, wasn't really well known. Uh, she is from the famous Vashon family of wrestling uh, with Mad Dog Vashon, Butcher Vashon, um, you know, very well known. And Vivian Vashon, her stepmother, um, was pretty well known in the business just for being from one of the most powerful families. But to find out that she wasn't originally from the family kind of took me completely by surprise there. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, Gertrude Hurd was her birth name. Yeah, which does not line up very well with the uh, person that we all knew, I guess, is is Luna Vachon. Um, you know, they got into it. They, they actually had our, her son is one of the people on the show which I thought was pretty interesting to yeah, kind of get cool. that side. Um, but, of course, she was uh, adopted from the family, uh, the Vachon family in Canada. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, she was adopted by Paul Vachon uh, after he was in a motel where her real father was killed. Um, she married Luna's mom, becoming her stepdad, and welcoming her into the Vachon wrestling family. Uh, she was enamored by the business as a child, but it was a wrestling aunt that really inspired her to become one of the latest in a long line of Vashans to step between the ropes. Um, other members of the family uh, tried to talk her out of it. By the age of 15, she was training with the fabulous Mula. Um, Mula herself has been a subject of Dark Side of the Ring in the past, which we've covered here on the show, too. Uh, another thing that was kind of cool about this one, I couldn't believe I was seeing Mad Maxine on my TV uh, in 2021 talking yeah. about this. Dude, a lot of people don't realize this, but Mad Maxine was primed to be one of the major superstars in the WWF during the rock and wrestling days. There's a lot of uh, stuff out there like uh, information and, and images and stuff from her uh, in the Hulk Hogan cartoon. She would later be removed because she would leave the World Wrestling Federation. But like it was pretty clear that they, like once Vince got eyes on her, that he was poised into making her a massive star for them, which probably would have worked at the time because Mad Maxine had a really interesting look, especially for like women in the mid 80s. She was and huge Ma too. Mad Maxine. That's what they did it. Hey, had the Mad Max kind of look. But yeah, talk about, uh, you know, from the past, just out of nowhere, which was cool. And just hearing her thoughts on Luna. Uh, and some of the other talking heads, of course, always got to shout out the great Mick Foley when they get him for episodes. Uh, Medusa was on here. And of course, David Heath, a.k.a. Gangrel, who was married to Luna, uh, who was cool. And like you already mentioned, her her son, which was neat to hear from uh, somebody that you, you don't know. And you kind of get to see how their personality is just knowing their mother from being a pro wrestling fan and watching on her on TV for all these years and figuring that her real life persona isn't too far off from her pro wrestling persona, which was the case in, in many ways. Uh, not all, as you know, with pro wrestling, Hey, uh, but he, he had some really good stories and of course, uh, really personal feedback for being her son and mentioned how she would come into school 
like the classic, you know, a lot of wrestling children tell those stories, but she would come in for show and tell with the bleached blonde hair that's half shaved and like a snake. Yep. And he would say, it's kind of embarrassing, but that's my mom. Yeah. Uh, She would kind of get enamored in general with uh, the whole Kevin Sullivan thing in CWF. She played a journalist in an angle, uh, which I think is really one of the coolest angles in wrestling to, you know, of way somebody making their debut. Um, But, you know, she was basically possessed by Kevin Sullivan's character. And he was kind of like the satanic character back then. Uh, And it worked. And, you know, it's basically said that that's around the time that she would get get caught up in drug culture that was rampant in wrestling. Uh, She also realized she may have bipolar disorder or even schizophrenia. Uh, She would play unhinged characters when in the ring and was very shy backstage, but there was no real clear line between the two personalities. Um, Luna would go on to marry a number of men in the wrestling business over the course of her career. Uh, the first of which was Dick Slater, which I didn't even know was true. I'd heard that before, but I didn't know for sure. Um, it was said that he potentially abused her, but nothing was ever proven. Um, she would go on to manage the black hearts, a tag team with David Heath, better known as Gangrel, as the Jay mentioned already. Uh, but she was married to his tag team partner, Tom Nash at the time. Um, her son revealed that when Nash would leave, Gangrel would show up. The two eventually fought over Luna, uh, leading her uh, to her and Nash, Nash's divorce. Uh, Gangrel mentioned on here that, that they didn't even like each other when they first met, but they would eventually be married. Um, Gangrel wrestled in a cage match that night and married Luna afterwards. They got matching vampire uh, neck tattoos instead of rings. Um, but Luna would go on to debut in the world wrestling federation in 1993 kind of setting her up for the big time and dude it's pretty crazy to think about this but her wwf debut was at wrestlemania in the debut match managing Shawn michaels against tatanka with sensational sherry so that's pretty crazy that's i it's weird how i've never thought about that but like she's definitely the first woman and maybe the first wrestler to ever debut at wrestlemania yeah, and that brought me back from a personal perspective because we always say here on the show that Jay really became obsessive to high levels with pro wrestling, catch, catching, catching little bits and pieces in my earlier childhood. But then in, right in 92 was that magical year that I really just full-fledged got you know, completely drawn into it. And so that sticks out to me, anything that happens around that time. And that was, you know, within that first couple of years of me watching and I'll just never forget Luna. I really didn't understand her at the time. And even as, as like a preteen or however old we were back then, Hey, yeah, off the top of my head, what, like 11, 12 ish. I remember like her kind of scaring me and me just not knowing that line yet between the kayfabe and, and all that, you know, and just kind of being, bewildered and, and kind of freaked out by Luna and her character back then. And of course, Shawn Michaels being one of my favorite wrestlers. And at that time he was kind of becoming one of my favorite wrestlers. You know, I wasn't all there with him cause that was his rise at that point as well. And yep. them, them getting paired up was such an odd couple. But for, when you go back, that somehow worked and it was very short lived, but it worked out that contrast. And I think that's why Vince put them together, of course, because it was the complete odd couple kind of thing. And like you said, just the whole point I was bringing this up with, with her debuting at freaking the 
Caesar's Palace WrestleMania, a huge debut, you know, going on to feud with Sherry for a bit, which which always stuck out to me as a kid and remembering all that stuff. Uh, some some of my bullet points, hey, I'll run through. Uh, just because, um, you know, it's just reiteration of, of yours as we do sometime. Just wanted to kind of mention my take on some of it. But I was literally shocked. I don't know how shocked you were on your knowledge of it, that the butcher was actually on here. Butcher Vashon, he's still alive. Yeah. Yep. I didn't know that. That was one of those ones. Mm-hmm. I was like, dude, he's still alive and they got him. Like, that's awesome. So, yeah. so yeah, just cool to see. And even though, like we mentioned at the outset, finding out as a surprise to us that she was adopted. It does make sense though, that it is a surprise to us without knowing that, that she wasn't a a natural born Vashon because he did adopt her around the age of four is when he got with her mother. So that makes sense. You know, she's pretty much raised by him since she was four. So pretty much a Vashon anyway, just not by blood and birth, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, But yeah, a, a ton of cool stories and a ton of, you know, really interesting stuff that this went through again, kind of rehashing your stuff with the, the Moolah stuff leading into the Kevin Sullivan days and everything we covered with her relationship with Gangrel and her reporter character, and then her getting taken over and, and becoming this crazy lunatic Luna character. And of course, uh, becoming part of the party scene, as you mentioned, Hey Ed, excesses of the eighties, as they said in this, this show, it snowed yep. every day in Miami. You knew that yep. they said she pushed every, boundary and would take up to a hundred pills a day. And, and those are kind of the things you hear that are just, uh, you know, just, just sad, just really insane that a human being can take a hundred pills of anything a day and, and still just keep going and end up becoming a, a pro wrestling star, you know, on, on that level. So, so yeah. And then of course, getting into the bipolar and anxiety or disorders, you know, you add that to, drug addiction and alcohol and everything else with within on top of it all the crazy road life and and career of a pro wrestler. And and that's why Luna uh, unfortunately would end up, you know, not being able to outlive that kind of a lifestyle eventually too. Yeah. She would uh, go on to become the first ever female performer to be a playable character in a WWE video game with WWF raw. Um, she was only mainly used as a valet in the WWE. There wasn't much of a women's division back then. Um, they have Medusa on here talking about, and this would have been when she was doing the Alundra Blaze character. Uh, she felt bad for Luna and said she was going to have her win the title without telling WWF. Uh, she explained in the episode uh, that she told Luna to pin her and she wouldn't kick out. Uh, Luna said she couldn't do it and had to lift Medusa's shoulders up off the mat as the Hall of Famer was adamant she was going to lose. This is a story that I'd heard before uh, in, in a couple shoot interviews and stuff like that. So it's definitely a true story. Uh, it's been said enough times. Um, it's kind of a shame that they didn't at least give Luna a run. Because, like, dude, back then, if you remember, too, it seemed like primed for Luna to be, you know, a major catalyst in the women's division. But they didn't well, even you go know down what? That, that route. Mick Foley mentioned that really well, where he said she was just one of those classic characters that unfortunately it was the the wrong place, wrong time. Like her timing was just off. You know, there's guys that we've talked about in the past uh, that kind of had that too, where it's like, you know, I think we talked about that specifically with Brian Pillman. You know, it's like you put him in the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels era just a little bit past where where he had came in WCW like those type of uh, and it just shows you like how people talk about that correlation between quote unquote luck. And timing, you know, sometimes that's that's all yeah. luck is, is timing and good timing. And, and there's no control over that. And yeah, I think she was just a little bit early 
for for her in-ring stuff because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to show her in-ring skills and she ended up being paired with Bam Bam Bigelow to kind of showcase that at a point that at a point. And I remember that match, uh, you know, that uh teaming which is pretty good. That's a good pair, Luna and Bam Bam. Yeah, it was cool. very much so, yeah. Uh of course, uh her addictions would escalate um to the point that she would spend some time in rehab. She was let go at the WWF at the time. Her son revealed that she had tried to kill herself on multiple occasions. Um, she was able to kind of come back into wrestling. She found herself, of course, in ECW for better or worse. But I will say this. This I remember as being somewhat of a resurgence of Luna's career. Um, she was going to ECW and she was having matches with men. Um, there was a lot of things like, you know, they, they would do things for her and it kind of worked out to the point where she would end up finding her way back to the WWF in 1997 and be a major part of the Attitude Era as she would go on to be a second of Goldust, feud with Sable, do a lot of stuff during that time. I remember uh, Luna even being with the oddities and things like that. So like she was a prime character uh, for the company in one of its hottest periods of all time, just because she basically fought her way back from that. Unfortunately, her problems would get worse, but she was able to kind of make a full comeback and be a major player on TV again, though, during the Monday Night Wars. That brings up something I wanted to mention too, Hey Ed, which was kind of different than, than previous episodes of Dark Side of the Ring, where they had Luna's audio throughout, you know, during various yeah. topics. Yep. And that was cool because she she brought that up with the comeback that you're speaking of where she's, you know, again, just trying to showcase her in-ring skills and bring women's wrestling up a notch. And then, of course, she's getting paired with a feud with somebody like Sable and who at that time and Luna in the audio, speaking of Sable, would say, she said, I don't have to take bumps because Vince has told me I am going to be the women's champion. And that's the kind of stuff that, that you're dealing with in the mountain that Luna had to, to climb, even on her second run with WWF. You know, it's the classic thing. Not much has changed. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, and, and that's also another notorious time in that company where a lot of people had problems. You specifically mentioned Brian Pillman. This is around the time that Brian Pillman would be found dead in a hotel room. Um, so clearly there was a drug issue. And that's not something I necessarily put on the WWF, but it was certainly their culture that kind of fostered that type of activity. So they definitely have a hand in it too. Um, it's kind of a shame that, you know, Luna would go on eventually too to even work in WCW towards their dying days and stuff. Um, she always managed to find a place in the business because she was such a character and she was, you know, like considered a generational superstar coming from the Vachon family. Um, you know, it's, this is definitely a cautionary tale type episode, but it's, it's really sad because for Luna's career, she was never seemingly in the right place at the right time, but she was always in the right place at the right time in a bad way. And I'm talking about like somebody with her problems and issues. She was always in the right place for the drugs and the ridiculous bullshit that certainly didn't allow her to have a longer career and a longer life. Um, as you know, kind of a response to that, or just the the equal and opposite reaction type deal when it comes to stuff like that. It's it's unfortunate too because we lived through 
her major portion of her career. And dude, I always enjoyed Luna as an on-screen talent. She was different. She brought something uh, to TV that I thought nobody else really did, especially when the WWE was using her as a manager in the early 90s. She was definitely something wholly original, and there was nothing else like her on TV. So that's something I'll always remember Luna for. Great call. Yeah, very original, and she always stood out. She really did. And as you mentioned, at this point of the doc, we're getting that after several incidents and you know, her weird behavior, she's released from the WF for the final time and they have her on audio again. We're like so many, you know, you hear so many, so much talent say this about all the stuff that us fans talk about Vince McMahon. We always say none of us know him or even met him. And, you know, a lot of wrestlers, especially the past wrestlers will say things like this, but Luna, once again, with the audio talking about Karen, so much about the business and saying at one point that she would have taken a bullet or been hit by a train for Vince. You know, which which of course leads to an LOL moment for the J. I mean, even though it's not funny, it's drug drug use, but still, uh, they told a story about um, you know her getting back with more drugs and doing a bunch of cocaine, and she particularly spelled out uh, "fuck Vince" with the cocaine and like was doing lines out of the "fuck Vince" cocaine line. Uh, so it's just ridiculous. But that that led into Gangrel popping back up and saying that her drug use is what drove them apart, obviously, and eventually. And, um, you know, Medusa comes in and says Gangrel was smart enough to get out of there because they would have probably both been dead, you know, and he ran away to California and, and just got married to kind of escape the whole thing. And I guess eventually that leads to Luna trying to just be normal out of the wrestling business and actually becoming a waitress after all this, which, which was crazy because yeah. I never had never heard anything like that either. Yeah, she doesn't strike me as somebody that was ever really well paid in the business either, which is kind of a right, shame. Right, exactly. You know, it, it's unfortunate because like they even said she was on the video game. Like there's things that she should have probably made significantly better money on than she did. And she just didn't. And that's it's a shame. Uh, you know, the only thing you could say about stuff like this is you hope the wrestling industry kind of learns its lessons when it comes to this type of stuff. Yeah, it seemingly has. But, you know, there's no end to that kind of shit, unfortunately. And it just doesn't seem to be you know, anything that's going to disappear from wrestling completely anytime soon. Yeah. As Mick Foley would state, it's again, like you, you mentioned, Hey, Ed, it's the cautionary tale of a pro wrestler and Mick Foley talks about the power of being in control when in a ring and then not feeling that when it's taken away from you and you just don't have a place. We talked about that, you know, going in with dark side of the ring, uh, this B season as we're calling it, you, you know, even with, uh, Chris Canyon and, and you're, you're kind of just lost. And, and I could see that even from a personal perspective, just on a different level from certain things, you know, you just get that rush and that adrenaline from some of these creative endeavors and, and stuff. And especially the athleticism side of pro wrestling too. And then all of a sudden you're a waitress, you know, and like Mick Foley said, he doesn't think Luna ever found that to replace wrestling. Of course, like again, like so many other cautionary tales to the point where it's just really sad where her son Van at this point is talking about, you know, he was in Texas. His mom was in Florida. They didn't talk much. She never even met his daughter, which would obviously be her granddaughter. So, you know, but he, he ch chalked it up to, you know, that's just mental illness. And, and you know, that's the way his mom was, unfortunately. And, and again, we, we mentioned it, man, you combine all these different factors for poor Luna. And it's just a, a really negative cocktail, you know, between the pro wrestling lifestyle in general, kind of being shit on within how the women's division was with her time. 
getting fired, having mental illness, having bipolar, being a drug addict, being an alcoholic. I mean, that, that all adds up. And it, that was, we, we called it going in. Hey, Ed, we knew it was going to be sad. And I, I did choke up because we mentioned when these things get up, you, you and I both share a, a personal experience with things like this. And, you know, it, it can definitely get to my heartstrings and get me emotional and just being a fan of Luna's, as you said, since we were kids and as you called her being unique and standing out and things, it was, a lot of it was very sad to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of those tales too, where, you know, it kind of shows you how the, the pro wrestling business chews somebody up and spits them out. And that's definitely the way I've always kind of viewed Luna's situation too. So uh, pretty sad, nonetheless, as you said, the J, but nonetheless, still a really, really solid episode. Probably one of my favorite ones of the season so far. Uh, definitely glad that they got to the topic of Luna Vashon because I think their story was inter- interesting enough for the series, too. So kudos to them. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Did you have anything else you wanted to add there, the J, or is that pretty much no, your yeah, sentiments? Yeah, good, good breakdown. Really enjoyed it. Another, you know, we always got to shout out the Dark Side of the Ring crew, Evan and guys. Uh, another good job uh, bring, brings me back, man. They put these packages together so well paced. I just kind of blow through them, and I, I'd end my take. Hey, uh, from from again, just always shouting out and quoting our man Mick Foley, uh, who mentions towards the end of the the docu episode here that he adored Luna and wanted to read part of his eulogy that he had read uh, with her passing, and he reads a bit of it, and you can tell it is crushing him. And he said, maybe Luna was perfect just as she was. Maybe she was exactly who she was supposed to be. There you go. So that sums it up very well. That was Dark Side of the Ring, Luna Vachon. Next week, join us as we take a look at Dark Side of the Ring on Rob Black's XPW. We have some personal experience, too, at the company, too, to add to the show. So stay tuned for that next week as well. But we have to take a quick commercial break. Whenever we come back, it's time to get into it. It is the season of Halloween. 31 days of Halloween. We're going to be talking some Halloween kills. We got a double feature, a double feature of movies uh, hosted by Elvira. I'm talking Messiah of Evil from 1973 and The City of the Dead from 1960. And of course, we're going to update you on our journey on our 31 days of horror as well. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Hey everyone, this is The J from the What's Real Podcast, here to let yins know about the feature films of Churchill Pictures. First is the Las Vegas Film Festival Silver Ace Award winner, Deference. Two best friends get in deep with the head of Pittsburgh's most dangerous crime operation and are forced to choose between their friendship and their lives. Deference is available now in hard copy USB format on churchillpictures.com and is currently streaming on vimeo.com, Amazon Prime, and is available for free on YouTube. Subscribe to the Churchill Pictures YouTube channel today. Next up is The Unsung. In an old industrial town, a homeless man roams the streets looking for a place to rest when a young girl is in danger. He runs to her aid and saves her from harm. She leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Through newspapers and a radio, Eric learns about a series of murders taking place in town. Inspired by the comic books he reads, Eric creates an alter ego and attempts to get involved with the investigation. The Unsung is available on DVD through Walmart.com and DeepDiscountDVD.com and is streaming on Vimeo.com and Amazon Prime. Please consider supporting Churchill Pictures' latest feature films and picture the possibilities. 
Chili Billy is my name. And we're back, and it is time to get into some Halloween goodness. Of course, we're going to have for you guys a Halloween Kills review coming up, and we're going to break down our 31 Days of Horror. But first, we have to finish off a double feature of Elvira goodness. Uh, We're going to be talking Messiah of Evil from 1973. And of course, we're going to be talking The City of the Dead from 1960. First up, let's take a look at City of the Dead, shall we, the J? Directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, not John Moxley, as I made the joke several times (laughs) when I watched the movie. Uh, A young college student arrives in a sleepy Massachusetts town to research witchcraft. During her stay in an eerie inn, she discovers a startling secret about the town and its inhabitants. And this was the moment, the Jay, because I, 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 I'm very familiar with Messiah of Evil. I haven't seen City of the Dead probably since I was a little kid. Um, but this is a double dose of satanic flicks, so that, that's kind of surprising. But uh, yeah, and witchcraft. Dude, yeah, dude, City of the Dead's pretty neat. Uh, it's a it's a slow moving black and white creeper. Uh, from 1960, it works on what they're trying to do. It's kind of just, it's like they're capitalizing almost off of what Psycho was with the Marion Crane character. Um, but dude, I will say this though, and it's it, like in an old timey way, uh, the Nan Barlow character played by Venetia Stevenson, she's fucking beautiful, yeah. like absolutely beautiful. And, of course, the big reason why you see City of the Dead is to see Christopher Lee hamming it up in a bunch of points in the movie as he is a uh, professor slash, and and sorry, guys, there's going to be spoilers. It's a movie from 1960, uh, (laughs) turncoat Satanist himself. Um, But, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It worked for me. It's not a classic or anything that will blow your mind. But it still uh, works in in as a in capacity as like a pretty fun Halloween flick. I, and I have to say too at the start here, hey you know, and, and don't get me wrong, you know me, I love my Elvira. I got my Elvira long sleeve tee. I bought this this year and everything that Katie cracks up at, you know, because it's just Elvira's big boobs on the front, but it's awesome. Boobs, boobs, boobarella. However, Joe Bob spoils us because as much as I love Elvira, her cutscenes are just nowhere near. It's just not as funny for, for anything else. It's just the nostalgia effect that having Elvira in a, you know, kind of fresh aspect, uh, still going strong 40 years celebration. So dude, all, all due respect, but yeah, the the cutscenes are are definitely nowhere near Joe Bob, of course, but all good. Just want to shout that out. So they, you know, like whenever they brought Joe Bob back, I was like, oh, man, that would be super cool. Right. And they brought him back and it was it's really cool. I really enjoy it and everything. And a lot of people were like, oh, they should bring back Elvira. And I'm like, yeah, that you know, it'd be really cool, too, if they would do that. So they're doing this in like a quick short form special thing with four movies. And I got to tell you, man, like I I don't really want Elvira back. Nothing against her. She's it's just time to call it quits. It doesn't work the way that it used to years ago. It's not as good as it used to be years ago, at least not for me. That's how um, I was feeling. But the 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 Joe Bob aspect where they're talking more about the movie facts and stuff is just something more up my alley yeah, at this point. I'm not I'm not 12 anymore, you know. Right, and it's just a different thing. And like I said, I'll I'll do respect to our our dark queen, the mistress of darkness herself, but just had to shout that 
that out uh, at the outset here, but still cool. You know, still a fun trip uh, down nostalgia lane with the four movies and this little special. I enjoyed the whole thing. And just with uh, City of the Dead specifically, hey, you know, like you said, it was just, you know, good at this time of year within our 31 days to add to it. Put put on a, an old timey kind of black and white. And like you said, man, just a lot of a lot of fog, a lot of slow moving stuff. But, you know, you still get the, the creepiness. And, you know, I like the parts with the uh, the priest where, you know, because he kind of breaks down oh, the, the situation. Blind man priest. Yeah, the blind priest where, uh, you know, he breaks down how that Massachusetts town, you know, of course, it's the classic, as we say, the sleepy that word sleepy in there, Massachusetts town Dude. where she goes to research witchcraft and it's just all goofy, you know? Well, it's a movie from 1960. Okay. So it definitely takes place in a time where people and their allegiance to whatever religion are pretty pronounced. And it was usually Catholicism at that point. So to see a movie from 1960 where people are just like loudly attesting themselves to right. Satan. Yeah. Cause that's what the priest wild. He's like, there's no religion yeah. here. They all, they will worship the dark side and all that. Yeah. And it's, and I mean, they say it in verbiage. It's not like everything like they do. They imply a lot with witchcraft, but there's a point in the movie where people are like, Oh, do thou percent Lucifer. Like there, I'm like, Oh shit. Like, you know, this, yeah. this movie probably really stirred some shit up in 1960. Uh, but dude, for me, it's, this is exactly what I thought it would be. Just like I said, like a slow moving creeper, it's atmospheric. Uh, there, there's some stuff that takes place in the 1600s that they flash back to and show you stuff from, uh, it's creepy. It, it works for what it is. It's it, like I said, not anything mind blowing, but it's definitely, uh, something fun to pull out of the stash for Halloween. Yeah. Cause again, I like, I like the atmosphere that's created. Like I always yeah. say, you know, you, everybody passes that old man where they have to ask directions. <laughs> he's, he's like getting yes. more people in that time period than he ever has in his life. He's like another one. You know? He's like the town's right down yep. now. Make a left. You know, kind of doing the impression of the dude, from the guy at the gas station. cemetery or like. the gas station. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, just, just the atmosphere of it with, with the fog and the black and white. And of course the whole time she's staying at this eerie inn. And of course the innkeeper's creepy and you have like the, the chick that she's like bullying the whole time. That's like the kind of mute yep. weird chick and you know, just a lot of characters like and a, stuff. It was cool. It, it's like a female version of the Igor character almost yeah. like yeah. She's just yelling at her the whole time and freaking out and shit. But, and you know, our friend uh, guys still City- like, I'd bang her. Like, damn yeah. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> but, uh, Let's get a tagline for City of the Dead, the J. So City of the Dead, the thrills, the chills of witchcraft today. Okay. Any, I actually have another one here. Uh, 300 years old. Human blood keeps them alive forever. So you see what you're kind of getting with this one. Uh, as we do here on the show, we go with a five-star rating scale. For City of the Dead, I'm going to give this one three stars. Right, witch. Solid three. That sounds good to me. Hey, y'all. All right, so that's one half of the Elvira special completed. Let's get to part two, Messiah of Evil. Um, Basically, it's about a young woman who goes searching for her missing artist father. Her journey takes her to a strange Californian seaside town governed by a mysterious undead cult. Now, that's the most story that you're going to get out of this one because that's barely even what this one is. <laughs> yeah, it's just I've never saw of, this. 
it, it's a lot of nonsense. But the, the one thing that I will say about this movie, and this is just me personally, is it has a Nitra Ford in it, which I think it is worth watching anything that she's in, especially if you've ever seen Jack Hill's The Big Bird Cage which is one of my favorite movies of all time. You got Pam Greer, Anitra Ford. Uh, you have Carol Speed, Vic Diaz, and Sid Haig. That movie fucking rules. So, And she's friggin' beautiful, so I could watch her in anything. And she's not in enough of this one. Uh, but this movie is one of the weirdest, like, satanic flicks shit. you're ever going to see. Yeah, there's tons of weird shit. That's why I like it so much. Um, it's not so much of a coherent movie. Um, it's, I'll be honest with you, dude. This is the best way I could explain Messiah of Evil. It's 90 minutes, right? And the first hour is just a bunch of weird fucking nonsense. Totally weird, totally nonsensical bullshit. But dude, the last half hour comes together and fucks shit up so much that this movie rules. If you can kind of stick through that first hour it pays off like a motherfucker in the last act. Yeah, cue when the bodies hit the floor, you know, and dudes are falling yes. through the ceiling and shit. How about you? I can't believe you never yeah. told me that Triple H's brother's in this, Jean-Luc Levesque, <laughs> who's really Michael Greer's <laughs> Tom, but I thought he had a definite Triple H vibe, <laughs> which, you know, the nose and everything. I got a kick out of that. But no, this this was cool, man, just because, again, any first watch, and, and I could take weird, you know, your boy the J, so I was into it. Uh, and like you said, definitely the, the the final act and in the last act was was awesome and, and really cool. It was a, another one we must call out, like you mentioned the the uh, Satan worshiping and witchcraft, and this one also going in with City of the Dead. This was a strange Californian seaside town, so you're still getting the sleepy town kind of vibe from both of these two uh, as far as the setting. But but yeah, like like you nailed it, man. It was a lot of you know again a lot of. Uh, people from the past popping up a lot of cool characters and just a really weird wacky movie that gets crazy at the end, but it, it's a solid payoff. Yeah. You have joy bang in this one. She plays the Tony character. Uh, she's also well known for playing the lead character in a really cool movie called night of the Cobra woman. Um, so there's a lot of cool people in this movie that did a lot of cool shit. Um, this movie is directed by William Hayek and Gloria Katz. Uh, so, like, you have a director's team. But, dude, this is wild to think about. Do you know what else William Hayuck directed? American Graffiti. Howard the Duck. Nuh-uh. Well, that's why he worked yes. with Lucas, because on the poster it says, from the makers of American Graffiti. Yes. it's He wrote, this guy wrote American Graffiti. Oh, he wrote it, okay. Uh, he also wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. One of my favorites. Uh, he also uh, wrote ra the Radio Land Murders, um, Lucky Lady, uh, French Postcards, um, The Devil's B, or the, I'm sorry, The Devil's Eight. I always see because the fucking thing looks like a B on the fucking yeah, it's an eight. <laughs> poster. But like, but the dude, you know, he directed some good shit and he wrote some good shit. So it, it's not a complete mystery why this one is pretty interesting. And Gloria Katz also was like a co-writer on a lot of the same stuff as him. So like they're clearly a writer, producer, director team. So they directed this one. Uh, this one was basically known for really playing grindhouses and drive-ins. And when you watch it, it looks exactly like the type oh, of stuff that you would expect from that me. era. Yeah, yeah. It, it just works for that type of an audience. 
Um, like I said, it's weird and it's wild, but the last half hour is really fucking good for this one. Um, so that's what makes me really enjoy it. But it's dude, I will say this. I thought it was this is more of Joe Bob fair than it is Elvira fair. That's why I was kind of surprised by it. Yeah, good call. And I throw the IMDb trivias at you when it's worth it. This one's short and sweet, but it's hilarious. Many of the extras in the film were unemployed NASA workers. You can believe yeah. that one. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably had to do a shooting location. Yeah, that's what I think they were they were shooting. So, yeah. You know, uh, we have some taglines for this one, the J. I was going to say, bear with me here. The bottom of their poster is as busy as New York City and the prime of Times Square is like a paragraph. <laughs> terror you want to remember. Terror you won't want to remember in a film you won't be able to forget from the makers of American Graffiti, Messiah of Evil. In order to live, they will take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. Which is hilarious because, see, there, there's also something in this, too, that I wanted to mention. There's a song by rapper Necro called Frank Zito, which is the lead character from Maniac. Right. And there's a big, like, interlude to the song where it's like this woman screaming, basically. They'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream, which is literally the last line you hear in the movie messiah of evil so it's kind of like people a lot of people might have never seen the movie but recognize that part of dialogue just from the necro song well speaking of which city of the dead and rob zombie from christopher lee's line i mean dude there's see that's the thing man people don't like people don't realize how influential a lot of this stuff was yeah when you see this shit as a kid man it sticks with you it definitely does so that's uh Pretty decent way of, of summing this one up, the J. We do a five-star rating scale. What do you got for this one, the J? Go two and a half for Messiah of Evil. Hey, okay, I like this one considerably more than you. I'm going to go three and a half on Messiah of Evil. I think it's just weird enough to be a lot of fun. So uh, we are going to take a quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, me and the J are going to take a look at Halloween Kills, brand new premiere in theaters and on the Peacock app. And we're going to take a look and update you guys on how we're doing on our 31 days of horror. So stay tuned, guys. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. An authentic Pittsburgh Italian restaurant tradition, Gerasoli's. Dine Italian style, surrounded by rustic stone walls as if you were in the wine cellar of a villa. Complete wine list and bar available, and check for live music nights. Fine dining with a traditional yet fun atmosphere. That's Gerasoli's. 733 Copeland Street, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 15232. time to get into the brand new Halloween Kills from director David Gordon Green, released this past weekend in theaters and on Peacock. Uh, The nightmare isn't over as unstoppable killer Michael Myers escapes from Laurie Strode's trap to continue his ritual bloodbath. Injured and taken to the hospital, Laurie fights through the pain as she inspires residents of Haddonfield to rise up against Myers. Taking matters into their own hands, the Strode women and other survivors form a vigilante mob to hunt down Michael and end his reign of terror once and for all. Um, The movie runs at about 105 minutes. 
which I thought was a pretty good pace for this one overall. I really didn't know what to expect, and I was not the biggest fan of Halloween 18, uh, 2018, that is. Uh, we have Jamie Lee Curtis returning along with Judy Greer returning, Andy Matichak returning. Uh, we have Nick Castle uh, making an appearance as The Shape. Uh, also, an Anthony Michael Hall sighting as Tommy Doyle. We have Charles Cyphers returning as Lee Brackett from the original series and the original first two films. Kylie Richards returns from the original film. Um, pretty decent cast overall. Um, one of the things I was definitely worried about, which I was worried about in the 2018 version, is Halloween without Dr. Loomis kind of doesn't work. And I felt like they fucked around enough in the first one to try and cover it up, and it didn't work very well. So going into this one, I was pretty concerned with what they were going to do. Um, they did a really good job of tying this up with the original movie, oddly enough, with some refilmed scenes and some footage and stuff that they added into the movie. Uh, that I thought was really interesting. So it kind of ties into the original uh, 1978 film and, you know, like the way that, that it probably should, I guess. They had a lot but of tricks up their sleeve with that. Hey, yo. The, the way that they got through it in this one to me, and I think that they're making a grave mistake if they go on to make any more than one more film. They're going to do Halloween Ends. We already it's called Halloween Ends. So, yeah. Um, so it better because this is, this is exactly the point that I'm going to make. They were able to get past the Loomis stuff by using the vigilante townspeople. And that's only going to get you so far, preferably one more movie and it's going to end, uh, which it should. Um, but I thought they did a pretty good job of using that kind of in the place of the Meyer or of, of the Loomis character and bringing somebody like an Anthony Michael Hall in to play the Tommy Doyle character works because obviously has some nostalgic 80s name value to him, but also he actually works pretty well in the character. He's a decent actor. I know a lot of people don't think that because he was famous as a teenager, but the dude's always pretty solid in the stuff that he's done. If you remember just a few years back, probably at this point longer than that, he was on a, a television adaptation of The Dead Zone that did pretty well, and he played the Christopher Walken character. So it worked out pretty well for him there, and I think it worked out pretty well for him in this one too. Oh, I love me some AMH. Hey, you know that. But yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they got a pretty good overall team behind this, which they have to have. And as we mentioned, uh, even last week with David Gordon Green and Jason Blum being, um, you know, joining the last drive in as guests with Joe Bob. And they one portion of that they covered like the whole Halloween franchise, you know, from its origin all the way up until where Jason Blum uh, was talking John Carpenter to be a part of it and everything, which was tough to do. Uh, ultimately, obviously, he won him over because that goes into the team where the credited writers on Halloween Kills are John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, you know, one of the original creators of the characters and things like that. And shout out Scott Teams as well, because as usual with these franchise things, a million people get their hands in the cookie jar and they write and rewrite and rewrite and write and rewrite. But a good team, you know, a lot of good character actors here. Like you said, I mean, he even threw in the original sheriff and they have the flashbacks to where, you know, his character's daughter was you know, pretty much the first victim 
you know, the babysitter, Nancy and stuff like that. Uh, what other cool parts there? Hey, you know, Oh, a bunch of different guys. I didn't know. I mean, I'm sure you knew this, but uh, I didn't know it till doing some further research on IMDb that they had Nick Castle play the shape a bit and Aaron Armstrong play the shape, you know, from 1978 along with the main current dude, James Jude Courtney. So all that kind of stuff goes into it as a fan of any series, you know, where you have those, uh, you know, kind of winks and everything. Uh, Will Patton, of course, is always good, uh, unexpectedly surviving the the knife attack from the goofy doctor in the first one. Like you said, the kind of Loomis distraction from Halloween 2018. Uh, but all in all, dude, I, I was very entertained by this. I, I was definitely in the mood for a new Halloween film during the Halloween series season after getting, um, you know, pushed back because of the 2020 pandemic and everything. So it, it all worked out and it definitely had its holes and flaws, which we can get into as we go on. But uh, initial take here and overall, Hey Ed, as Jay, the Jay says, fun and entertaining for sure. Yeah. Another shout out to uh, Scott MacArthur and Michael McDonald playing the big John and little John characters. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> good call. Uh, Michael I McDonald, Michael McDonald. I, I think a lot of people may remember is playing a character on mad TV uh, named Stuart, but he was, he was part of the ensemble cast pretty much the entire time. Mad TV was on television. Uh, he's really good in everything. So it was cool to see him show up here. Um, I thought that they did a pretty good job. One of the major things that this movie needed to do uh, to continue on to the third film is keep Jamie Lee Curtis and, you know, the Laurie Strode character away from Michael Myers, which they did do the entire movie. That's not so much of a spoiler. It's just going into the movie, knowing something like that. And, you know, they do give you uh, something interesting. And, and dude, this is crazy to think about. Now, crazy, right? We've seen how many movies? I want to say like 11 movies with Michael Myers in them at this point. And even though the character never technically dies, they always try to kill him or, or do something to end the film with some sort of a crescendo. Um, it's wild to see a Halloween movie like this where, and this is no spoiler, because again, we're doing a third movie after this. They don't even attempt to kill Michael Myers. Right. They don't even attempt it. That's not the point of the story in the movie. And I thought that was extremely interesting. And dude, I guess the reason why I really like this one. Now, I'm somebody that considers himself a Halloween fan. The original is a classic. I think the second one's a classic. And even though it doesn't have anything to do with Michael Myers, I like the third Halloween a lot. After that, the whole series kind of falls off a cliff to me. Um, this one is probably the best one since those three that I just mentioned. And it's because it feels like they're trying to do something with a story as opposed to, yeah, let's make another one of these goddamn things. Exactly. Nobody makes a good, bunch of money. Good point. Great point there. Uh, and dude, in return, now I don't know if you saw this stuff, the Jay, but Halloween Kills cleaned up at the yeah, box 50 office. Million it had plus. the highest, which was better than Godzilla versus Kong. So this movie definitely, and this franchise definitely has a pretty strong fan base. And I think the fact that this movie playing around, you know, October, uh, also, you know, the general public is just on the same wavelength. This is kind of what people want to see at the theaters around this time of year. 
Another personal note, as far as it goes, I know I brought it up on the show. I think it was specifically when we did a horror film retrospective, uh, career retrospective on director John Carpenter on a past episode. I think it was last year's October shenanigans. Hey, Ed, in 2020, yeah. if anybody yep. wants to, to listen, our, you know, our archives are available on churchillpictures.com and varying, you know, wherever you get your podcast cheap plug, which we never do. So might as well do it here. But I mentioned that my mom back when I was a kid would talk to me about Halloween before I ever saw it or was allowed to see it. And it made me want to see it so bad, you know, kids like don't tell them what they, they can't do. They're going to want to turn around and do it. And so when I finally saw it, you know, it was like a classic for our family kind of thing. Cause my mom of all people told me about this horror movie. Cause my dad, as you know, on the other hand was the one that really introduced me to horror films along with my cousin, Johnny, but this correlation with my mother and Halloween in particular, like this masked killer comes after the babysitter and it freaked me out so much. So it was so built up when I finally got to see it and it just, blew me away all that said i brought this up to my mom i'm like did you know there's a new halloween kills i don't know if you guys get peacock but it's streaming on peacock as well as being in movies and to your point with where the franchise is now my mom even said you know again that's why i told the whole backstory because she has that correlation which loving the first one she's like oh jamie lee curtis is still in it she's like i'd watch that which even with yeah. all that, it did surprise me, you know, but my mom was like, oh, I'll, I'll watch that, you know? So yeah, it just tells you you're exactly right. This is a rabid fan base. And if you can give at least people what they want, it's what we always say, give what's advertised, just give a fun, entertaining, solid Halloween movie. And, and you're going to, as they, they showed, sweep it up at the box office. Yeah. I mean, dude, I think that there, I was thinking about this somewhat recently, um, I don't know how much people realize this or not, but through the history of horror movies, before Americans were really making anything of note, it was more of a British thing. Like the British made the best horror movies. They were making Hammer movies and Universal stuff. And and by that, I even mean like when the studios of America would have, you know, they would make a Universal movie. They would hire British directors and, and stuff like that because they were making the best stuff in the world at that point. Um, that's all started to change with George Romero and Night of the Living Dead in 1968. And listen to how wild this is, but this is really the zenith of the American horror film. When Night of the Living Dead came out in 68, then in 71, the ex or 72, The Exorcist came out. And then in 74, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out. And then you had stuff like Dawn of the Dead come out. And then you had Halloween come out. And then you had Friday the 13th come out. And then to a later extent, Nightmare on Elm Street. This is the entire lexicon of American horror and what truly like you can sprinkle in movies here and there like an American werewolf in London and think even though that's still a kind of a British film, uh, even though it was made by John Landis and stuff, you've seen like the zenith of the American horror film come up in that that time period. So like all these guys are essentially responsible for that stuff. Halloween is certainly one of them. And it's why it gets that reaction that you gave from somebody like your mother, where like a Halloween or a Texas Chainsaw Massacre or like those movies just carry more cachet to your average person than, you know, like a prom night or, or something like that ever would. A more obscure one. And we say it all the time. What is that equivalent to that nostalgia that Beautiful little of tinge course. of nostalgia that gets anybody because it just takes you back, you know, especially as you age. So, yeah, you, you nailed it there. Dude, uh, I, I've talked about this on the show and, and you know this about me, but, you know, I'm 41 years old and every year on Halloween, I watch John Carpenter's yep, Halloween. I've thing. been doing it every <laughs> year. It's it's I, I watch that and I watch Night of the Living Dead every year on Halloween because those were the movies that I watched every night 
on Halloween when I was growing up. They were always on TV. So if they're not on TV now, I make them be on the television. So it's just the way that it works for me. And, and it's a big reason why. So, but, but, you know, just to back to Halloween kills, man, really cool flick. I was really impressed with it, especially considering I didn't really care for the uh, 2018 version at all. Um, I really did enjoy this one. I thought that they, it, it brought something back that I didn't see in these movies for a really long time, which is just general coherency uh, and people that give a shit enough about the source material to try and make something different, but staying true to what they're staying true to. And I thought that they did a really good balance with that in this one. And that's why I liked it so much. I really enjoyed how chaotic it got towards the beginning of the third act, the the yep. hospital scene with the community being all in the hospital and all that shit going on. That was awesome because, you know, you got Anthony Michael Hall starting the, the chant, evil dies tonight and everything, and they're getting the gimmick going. Everything's going on with the old sheriff and the, and the new sheriff, you know, the, the black dude with the cowboy hat, uh, who's good, like, in his role. Like, he's just a a different kind yeah, of character in this that does this part. Yep. Uh, so that, that part was really cool. Cause then you had the other uh, escapee, the, you know, escaped uh, psychiatric patient that yep. like she tried to save the daughter and stuff. And then he goes out and, the dude, window, and there's just all kinds of crazy shit going on, which I love. There is a little bit of social commentary in there about mob mentality and things like yeah, that right. without a doubt, you know, and and I don't disparage directors from doing that stuff. I think as long as you're not ham fisted with it, uh, people could kind of see that stuff in your movie and they can kind of ignore it and watch the movie and enjoy it for what it is. And I think that's the best way to do it. And I kind of felt that's the way that, that it was here. It's not to the point where it really is like, oh, here we go. But it's there. You know, if, if you choose to see it, and you like that kind of stuff. Cool. If you hate that kind of stuff, you could ignore it and just watch the movie for what it is. And it's not for better or for worse either way. Which which brings up another aspect of the whole aesthetic of the film where there was just a lot of different things like that. Like you said, the social commentary and there was, as always, there's some comedic kind of stuff. And and of course, like we're, we've been mentioning, of course, all the winks towards Halloween franchise fans going all the way back to 78, which I'm, I'm sure you caught the one where the mass of the three corpses on the merry-go-round or the silver shamrock mass. Yep, Speaking of Halloween sure three seasons of the witch as Hey Ed said, a movie that is a sequel in name only since it follows a separate continuity with without Michael Myers. And then of course they also put in the whole kind of side thing stemming from Halloween six with the kind of curse of Michael Myers that Jamie Lee Curtis talks about. And then you get to the point like at the end, again, trying to avoid complete spoilers, but the townspeople kind of get their hands on Michael Myers, Laurie Strode's daughter, certain things happen and you kind of think, okay, are they maybe going the supernatural route? Like what, what is going to go on in what we think is the final chapter with Halloween ends moving forward. But all, all that was really interesting to me as well. Yeah. It, I was really just, I just did not expect them to handle this as well as they did. And they really did. The, the movie was really cool. It moves. Uh, it has a point. Um, it, it's a middle point of two movies, one we've seen and one we haven't seen. Um, but I thought that they were able to make even that pretty entertaining. And like I said, the fact that they don't even really attempt to finish off Michael Myers in this one makes it kind of a standalone because of that in itself. And I, I thought that was really cool. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I, I like I said, I just wasn't expecting this type of effort. So I was really impressed with it overall. Um, but the J, uh, do we have a tagline for Halloween Kills? Yeah, we already mentioned it is the big 
chant, kind of the gimmick of the whole thing started by Anthony Michael Hall's Tommy Doyle character, evil dies tonight. Which I also think in a way is kind of a prophetic uh, spoiler. That could have been a lot cheesier than it, it came off. I'll, I'll say that. Well, dude, it, I think the it, they're telling you so evil dies tonight, which I think basically tells you that the third film is going to be the same night. So it's yeah. going to be a continuation of this exact time frame. Although, you know what? It's not going to be later or anything. I heard something from the director. I could be wrong, but I think I, I heard something like it's actually four years later or something like that. That would be surprising to me if they if they would go and do that. Yeah, it don't is possible. Quote me there because I read something uh, from the director because that's that's where he kind of explained the supernatural aspect of it, which I don't want to get into here. You know, if anybody's interested in that, obviously you can track down the David Gordon Green interview. I think he did that one with IGN because I'm always on IGN. So, but I could be wrong there, okay. Ed. But yeah, like you said, I think he mentioned something like that. But yeah, we'll have to see. I'm very interested now in seeing how they wrap things up because this one was definitely enjoyable. And I'd like to watch this one again, too, which oh, is something that yeah. I can't believe I'm saying. So that, that's definitely good news there. But as we do here on the show, five-star rating scale, the J, what did you give Halloween Kills? Got a solid three and a half with Halloween Kills. Hey, yo. Same. Same yeah. exact rating, three and a half. Great Dude, I, I was talking to a few people, of course, our friend Runk being one of them, and I saw a lot of people were going through with Letterbox specifically. That's another thing that caught my attention. Uh, and showing everybody their list of how they rank their their Halloween films uh, from, of course, worst to best. So I figure I'll throw this out there for you. This is how I rank them. And there's 12 films total. So I'll go from 12 to one. 12 is Rob Zombie's Halloween. I fucking hate that movie. Uh, at 11 is Halloween Resurrection from 2002. That is the Busta Rhymes one. 10, Halloween 2 from Rob Zombie. Uh, number nine is Halloween five. Number eight is Halloween H2O. Number seven is Halloween 2018. Six is Halloween four. Five is Halloween six. Four is Halloween kills. Three is Halloween three. Two is Halloween two. And one is the John Carpenter classic Halloween. So that's how I'd rank them. And dude, you know, this one's fourth on that list. So that's pretty good. Says uh, a lot. A pr yeah, pretty good applause for me for sure. So let's get into it. The J, we have something bigger to attest to. And I'm talking about the 31 days of Halloween, where me and the J try to attempt to watch at least 31 movies during the month of Halloween. So the J, let's get into it, brother. Where are you looking on the list? Uh, let, let us know where you left off last week and update us on what you've been watching. All right, so I left off, and uh, I apologize. I, I don't have the 31 days list as updated and on point as the NFL, uh, but I could do it real quick here. So there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 9, 10, 11, 12. I was on 12, hey, yeah, because that's right. Last week was October okay. 12th when we recorded. I was 12 on 12. I was averaging a day at a time, which you need to do, obviously, and then you try to get in those double, maybe even triple features, which is really damn hard for the J to get a head start or caught up a bit. However, uh, with this week from last week's recording, hey, you know, man, is the Jay eclectic with his watching. I, I told you I kind of had a blueprint and just made a list of 21 films uh, of which I was going to try to pop in out of my personal collection and maybe streaming. Well, the way everything worked out, 
because of how busy I am. I was that lazy to not even dip into the Blu-rays and throw them in. I was going all streaming. So that is my excuse why this is kind of all over the place. It's such stuff I caught on varying on demand and, and streaming stuff that I have within my, my entertainment packages and whatnot. So here we go. Hey, for the J moving forward from 12 here on 31 days, 2021 here on the what's real podcast. We're starting off with a classic Wes Craven, the Hills have eyes. Uh, next up. Oh, good call. I haven't watched that one in a while. Yeah, it's and been I love a while. that movie. Yeah. And uh, I actually watched that with uh, Joe Bob. It was uh, one of the ones that are on Shutter uh, oh. din- Dinners to Die For. So, yep. yeah, I watched that with Joe Bob because that's one of the few Joe Bobs that are still on there. I've been tracking down the ones I might have missed. And I'm, I'm down to just the Christmas ones. I think I watched every Joe Bob special that's on Shutter currently, except the Christmas ones, which obviously I'm saving for December. I was watching them. So we start off with The Hills Have Eyes. Next up is one I know you mentioned you watched. It, it was one of the newer ones. I wanted a fresh watcher. This was on Shutter VHS 94. I checked out. Okay. Pretty good. Yep. What'd you think? Entertaining se- I liked it. Some entertaining segments. Um, the the first one was pretty good with the, the rat thing in the news. That anchor. was probably my favorite one. Actually. That was fun. Uh, the other ones were decent. I, I thought the the Japanese robot thing was pretty cool. Uh, that one was very, that was really weird violent. As fuck. Yeah, the the redneck and versus vampire kind of one. That one wasn't great. I, think eh. I wasn't that big on that one, but it, it was fun. Uh, next up was a classic. I mentioned to you we were talking actually when I had this one on uh, the original House with our man William Cat. Okay, that's a classic. Uh, then, of course, the aforementioned Halloween Kills is on the list. Uh, this one was out of nowhere just because I caught it streaming. It's one of those ones I probably only saw one, once in the past. It, it's a remake of a classic from Vincent Price. And this is the remake of House of Wax starring Paris Hilton herself. Yeah, it's not bad. It's not nothing bad. really like House Didn't of Wax. So it's a completely yeah. different movie. Completely different. Thing, I like it, not though. Bad. Yeah, entertaining. Uh, then, of course, uh, the easy ones to blow through uh, from this week as well, City of the Dead and Messiah of Evil. And then this was a random one going in with my description of House of Wax. Remember just seeing it once. It popped up on 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 demand. I was like, you know what? I haven't watched it more than once. I'm just going to check it out. And that was 13 Ghosts with Tony Shalhoub. And that one was was definitely weird, but it definitely has. That was one of those ones that just missed the mark, but it had some aspects to it. The original's great. It's really fun, and it's a William Castle movie, and I feel like they're trying really hard to capture the William Castle style, which yeah. didn't really work for the time. That's that's why it's kind of off, I think. Some some really violent kills in that one. I was surprised. Definitely. Yep. So so there I am. Hey, Ed, so that's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 even the Jays at here on, as we record on the 19th. So just like I was saying at the outset there, I'm passing my day – the uh, average pace. So I'll take it. 20 movies for the J here as we record on October 19th, throwing it at you. Hey, yo. All right, the J. So this is how we were looking. I had 13 uh, as of last show. So uh, at 14, I would go to watch one that you mentioned that I just had to watch this year. And that is house from 1986 with William cat. I fucking love that movie. I'm going to try and watch the sequel too, before the months. I love the sequel. I I like the the sequel sequel too. My weird ass. It happens. I could see it. That's like one of them eighties things. And it, and it really doesn't even matter that you saw like oh, out of of all course. The, the franchise type, you know, movies like that or anything. Yeah. It's like you didn't even have to see the first one. So exactly. 
I this is weird how this worked out. It ended up being a Steve Miner double feature because he directed House. I also watched my favorite Friday the 13th. That is Friday the 13th Part 2 from 1981. Uh, of course, I watched Halloween Kills, as we just reviewed it here on the show. I did watch the original Scream from 1996. I don't know why the only time of year I ever watched that one is during Halloween time, but I did. Uh, I checked out the brand new remake of Slumber Party Massacre, which uh, I guess we could pretty much say this. Me and you, the J, are going to take a look at that one next week here on the show. Yeah. Um, I also watched The Descent from twenty or 2005, which is definitely my favorite uh, horror movie of the a arts, personal classic. I guess you would call it. Yep. Absolutely. So that's a fantastic flick. Uh, I went back and watched Children of the Corn from 1984, which I've been meaning to watch. Uh, I still enjoy it, dude, but I'll, I'll tell you this. That movie is not as good as a lot of people think it is. Um, it's still nostalgic for me, but the movie itself is like there's some stuff in it I really don't care for. Um, of course, I watched City of the Dead and Messiah of Evil to review here on this episode. I watched Halloween H2O the other night. Uh, it's about as mediocre as I remember it. Uh, I watched Friday the 13th, the original, and uh, the last one that I watched was from 1995, and I like to watch these out of order because they're all completely stupid, and that is Leprechaun 3 I actually caught. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, so, so far for the month, I'm up to 25. So I'm definitely going to get to 31. I'm just curious to see how far beyond I get it. Uh, exactly. I have an idea of a few things I want to watch, and I'm going to hopefully get some stuff in uh, before the end of the month. Uh, you know, I usually always watch Dawn of the Dead this month. I always watch Night of the Living Dead, and I always watch fucking Halloween. So those are coming, too. And it's weird, too, because I always just watch the Halloween movies completely out of fucking whack because I've already watched part four, uh, and I'm definitely going to watch probably one and two at some point. And, you know, whenever you get three, I'm sure I'll run into part three at some point during this month, too. But uh, so far, so good for the 31 Days of Horror for both of us, the Jay. We're knocking them out. I'm knocking them out and having a blast, man. Love me some October goodness. You know what's weird, too, man, just to bring this up? I don't know how you feel. I'm normally burnt out kind of at this point, like or fe- starting to feel it. You know what I mean? And I'm really not this year. I'm I'm thinking I might get high numbers this year as yeah, long as that you. doesn't set in at some point. I'm, I'm having a blast with it. Like I said, I, I got this kind of blueprint for what I wanted to watch, and there's a huge chunk that I didn't get to because I'm watching these random ones, so. Uh, I'll try to get to some of those this week because, as you know, hey, this this weekend is our traditional family trip. Uh, we take every year in October up to the mountain resort near Pittsburgh, Seven Springs. And I, you know, everybody's down to watch horror movies. So I usually get at least four or five in over the weekend. So this will get me caught up nicely, too. So, yeah, having a blast, man. We'll see how we do come the 31st. See, and it's kind of cool, too, in that regard, because you can go away for the weekend. And as long as you have your phone on you, there's a way for you to, like, watch these movies where before it's like unless you were bringing a suitcase full of DVDs well, a, and shit, you really didn't have that. Yeah, dude, I bring the Fire Stick. You know, all the TVs now are HDMI. There you get go. Internet, so, yeah, Fire Stick, I have everything on that. Can't beat it. So there you go. That's our update. That is our Halloween coverage for the week. Hope you guys join us next week for some more fun stuff, of course. Uh, But we are going to take another quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking some goofs and doing some show wrap up. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. 
Whitaker Tire is your place for speedy service, wide selection, and great prices. We offer new and used tire sales as well as tire services at our location at 3701 Green Springs Avenue in West Mifflin, Pennsylvania. As a tire dealer, we offer the best tires from top brands, including Bridgestone and Firestone. We're open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Saturdays from 9 to 3. Please give us a call today at 412-462-1199. Whitaker Tire, for your best tire services in Pittsburgh. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Goofs. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? Wolf J howling at the full moon here on the precipice of the waterfall of goose. Hey, yeah, for goose or goose episode 91. And we're starting off with one of our favorite topics here on the show uh, on the goose or goose segment brawls. Cause the J tracked down yeah, another gotta brawl. Love brawls. And this one took place at a Texas state fair is the Texas state fair brawl at Jack's French fries. As they say with Jack's French fries, hashtag Jack's French fries. Hey, yep. Yeah. If it ain't Jack's, it ain't Jack. And a huge brawl <laughs> over <laughs> mugs not getting their fries in time or something. And it's oh, I, just, I, dude, <laughs> I, I thought it was if if you ain't getting your fries from Jack's fries, we will jack your jaw with some fry making equipment. Because yeah. that's what motherfuckers are doing in this video. <laughs> Fucking, I don't even, dude, it's the most like. Give me make up a reason why this happened, because from the video, I can't I have no idea what happens and shit just starts going fucking everywhere. Yeah, well, it looks like there's a a shit ton of people at this fair to begin with. So I'm thinking the French fry place fuck somebody's order up and it just escalated (laughs) to the heavens. (laughs) And the funniest is the old white dude in the middle of all of it. And he's trying to keep, keep the peace. And then somebody hits him with something and he leaves the booth and goes out. And then the one chick grabs the hot French fry grease out of a bucket and literally throws it. And it's just, uh, you know, it's our viral video. So you got to look it up. Texas State Fair Brawl, Jack's French Fries. My favorite part is like everybody's just like, you know, fine with the shit that's happening. But when the lady picks up the hot thing of fries, everybody acts like she just picked up the fucking landmine. And they're like, no, don't do that. No. Like the cops are grabbing her. And they're like, what happened? Everybody's like, oh, no, shit's just fucked up. That's how Texas is with their fries, man. I was dying. And that the one like the one dude said, I ain't that serious, guy. I was But dying. there's always one dude willing to fight over the dumbest shit. It's like, dude, this I, I've I've noticed this too. So this just kind of coincides because we've talked about these type of brawls on Goose or Goose many times where it's like the football brawl, like a bunch of fans in the crowd, right? And it's the same shit every time. It's like two dudes having an argument or one guy that's had too much to drink. And then there's all the bystanders. And then as soon as the shit starts popping off between the two people, you see those bystanders turn into the world's greatest sucker punch. They're punching people in the face, swinging at women. Like, it's just like all fucking, like, seriously, if you stand around a fucking fight, that has nothing to do with you. And the minute shit pops off, you're punching fucking strangers in the face. You're kind of a piece of shit. 
I'm just saying. And I, and I would say it is all or nothing, dude. That's why you got to just get the fuck out of there. I remember when brawls would pop up in high school and stuff in the halls and I, I you just get the fuck out of there. Cause you exactly that you're going to get hit with a haymaker. I'm like, dude, this ain't my business. You know, unless it's, it's like, obviously it depends on the situation, world. but. Oh, of course. Yeah. A fucking like, Steeler game or something. Get the fuck out of there. I'm getting my, my wife like, or whoever. Or dude. Well, that's one thing. See, this, the football game thing's dangerous because of the terrain you're on. You're right, like you're in a on, weird in the fucking seating stands. section. Yeah. Yeah. Or like at the state fair, it's like someone could fucking just shoot you 12 times. Yeah, <laughs> these like, days. I don't yeah. think they have that kind of fucking security at the state in fair. In Texas, like you're trying to throw hot French fry oil on somebody in Texas. Everybody there's strapped. Like, you know, everybody there yeah, carries. I, I wouldn't even... You ain't going to catch me at the state fair in Texas. That's for damn sure. <laughs> Next up is one of our legendary goose. He's in the goose or goose hall of fame, but we love him. We love you genius. And that's our man, Kanye. As I'm sure you saw, Kanye has officially changed his name to just yay. Y E. So Kanye is now yay. No, no uh, longer Yeezus either. And then on top of that, within the Halloween season here, the, Halloween, October shenanigans on the What World podcast. This goes in perfect. I don't know if you saw the latest picture, but Ye was pretty fly for a white guy. Hey, as he rocks a bizarre mask in New York City and looks straight out of a horror film. Yeah, he's a fucking goof. I've kind of had enough with him because, like, I'm a fan of hip hop and it kind of annoys me that people associate one with the other. So the best thing that I could do is just bring this up real quick because I don't know if you've seen this or not. So, you know, they do these versus things all the time, like online and shit. Like they've been doing them since the pandemic where they'll pick two acts and they kind of just like it's like a battle, but they're not battling each other. They just go through their hits and it's like back and forth. No, oh, yeah, of course. So over the weekend, there was one that happened at the Barclay Center in Brooklyn and it was Big Daddy Kane versus KRS-One. KRS yeah. And it was fucking awesome. It was so good. They brought out fucking guests and the crowd was into it and fucking they could dude, two dudes over 50 years old still up there fucking performing. Just go. Like, yeah, it, dude, it was so great. So it's forgive me for shitting on the segment here, the J, but when I hear a Kanye and people want to associate that with hip hop, I just got to bring up something that's like actually real hip hop that was actually amazing. Yeah, because the, the TMZ description of this is hilarious where they said, yay is turning more heads in New York City than normal by covering his entire face with a mask that even he would have to admit is just beyond the pale as the artist formerly known as Kanye West is showing around the Big Apple in your standard issue ball cap, shades, Balenciaga leather jacket, oh, and one of those rubber or latex masks he's been wearing a lot lately. This one's super light skin, though, to put it lightly. Hell, who are we kidding? It's downright Caucasian. <laughs> so, he's keeping he's it up. Such, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm i going to hold back uh, due to the fact that I know he has mental issues, so I'll just leave it be there. But, like, I don't know. It's, it's what, the reason why all this time, like, it's funny. It People don't talk about his clothing so much because it's weird. That's the bad thing. They, and you know this, the Jay, because of the streetwear shit and everything. Like, he's praised as a fucking genius when it comes to clothing and shoe design. design Not yeah. by me or us, really. But yeah. fucking, that's why this stuff gets, to, he's, he's like a fucking living, breathing, functional fashion designer brand. 
Like instead of like Calvin Klein makes Calvin Klein clothing, but like the Yeezy brand and that's him walking around. You know, if that makes it's like if it's it would be like if the polo logo was a fucking person. Oh, it's ridiculous. And but again, like you said, it's a mental health thing. We're not poking fun at that even on GRG, but hey, you reap what you sow. He's walking around New York City in a insane mask and during October. Like, what do you want? There you go. You're gonna, you're gonna get on goose or goose, you know. That's that's no fault of your own. Jay. You try, you know. S- speaking of which, I don't know if you heard this one. Hooters is under fire over a new quote unquote crotch string uniform shorts as the one chick said this shit is rated porn you see this wait what yeah no, their new shorts are like, like chicks at hooters now in like thongs pretty much she's wearing you know she's uh taking a look at the wedgie that it gets you um as, as the new i mean this is the freaking new york post saying this hooters girls cheeks are blushing in fury over their skimpy new uniform shorts and i don't know what cheeks they're talking about hey y'all you know, dude, it kind of makes you think, right? Like, are they underpaid strippers or are they overpaid waitresses? And I'm not trying to shit on them either way. That's not what I mean. Like, you figure girls that do stuff like this would be probably fine with stripping, especially to make way more money, right? But is, a, I'm asking out of ignorance here, is being a server or a Hooters girl like significantly better money than just being a server at a restaurant. Yeah. Well, not in Pittsburgh. We don't even have Hooters anymore. We had two of them. Yeah. If I was going to say, I don't, if there are some here, I don't know where the fuck they are because the the ones that I knew about are gone and they've been gone for a long time. I haven't been in a Hooters in 20 years. Our group of friends known as Generation F growing up lived there because right (laughs) up the street. It's the only place we could go. Yeah. And yeah, for good that reason was, when we're 15. It was 16. always a it was always a meeting point for some odd reason for a few years. But again, the breakdown on the New York Post is hilarious. The old shorts, although crotch length, offered Hooters girls a few more inches of coverage around their bucks. Bucks or backsides. <laughs> <laughs> the new wow. additions cover most girls' upper buttocks and only offer what some discontented employees had referred to as a crotch string, which resembles a thong-cut panty. Uh, I guess Hooters corporate did uh, reach out to the employees, and they were hoping to change uh, and create excitement with the current Hooters girls. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so so I looked this up because I'm like, what is the – is it, like, gross? or? Okay, so the front reminds me of, like – early 80s tight girl shorts. So that's not offensive, it really. I don't see a problem with it. But on the other side, I kind of get what they're getting. It's the ass. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm yeah, also not, not going to Hooters. That's how it goes. But, but yeah, that's kind of bizarre. That's it's weird to make like people work. And, and that's why you got to love I corporate because corporate's just like, you know, like, what, what? They're like... We would ask you, uh, they said, they put out a statement. We would ask that you try them out. And if after two weeks, you're still hesitant to wear the new shorts, you may transfer to a non-image based position or resign your position as a Hooters girl. But if you choose to resign, you will be eligible for rehire. Like good statement there, Hooters. I mean, here's the thing though. Like 
nobody going into a job at Hooters is expecting him to be like, you know, the content. Well, to that, hey, Ed, that's how the article ends. I actually like the new shorts posted a Kentucky Hooters staffer named Amanda. They're really not that bad. And I bet you they make a lot of girls a lot more money. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. As we say here and on the that's show. that's what it comes down to here. Cue Ted DiBiase's theme music. Money, money, yeah. money, money, money. Exactly. on the What's For Real podcast, Goose or Goose 91 segment, this one is crazy. Hey, yo. Kellogg's is being sued because there's not enough strawberries in Pop-Tarts. Like, you believe that? actual strawberries or what? <laughs> Kellogg's is trying to pull a fast one by hyping up the strawberries and some of their Pop-Tarts because there's very few of the actual berries inside. This according to a new lawsuit. The breakfast food giant is being sued in a new class action alleging Kellogg's is misleading consumers about what they're really eating when they bite into the toaster pastry. A New York woman named Elizabeth Russett is leading that crusade against Kellogg's. In her suit, she claims the fruit filling in Kellogg's whole grain frosted strawberry toaster is mostly other fruits. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with them on that. Like, you know, just put, I don't know why there's so many people out there that don't give a fuck what's in their food, but like, yeah, you should probably tell people what's in it for real. They should not be able to lie about it or cover it up or smartly reword the names of shit. Like, just tell people what the fuck's in the food or fuck off, period. Yeah, that's, that's what, like they I say, man, you know, you want to have a good diet. I always tell people, eat stuff that with no ingredients, you know, just what's there, obviously. Yeah, and um, go, to, go to your farmer's market and buy green beans. Don't buy them in a can because yeah. they're covered in sugar. And there's all kinds of, yeah, like the nutritional thing has like a paragraph as opposed to if you buy them at the farmer's market and it's just like green beans. Uh, But yeah, the Pop-Tarts in question are actually heavier on pears and apples than strawberries. And she's seeking damages exceeding $5 million, hey, you know, to get Pop-Tarts to label accurately. Now, don't don't get me wrong here. Pop-Tarts are fucking fire. Like, I love Pop-Tarts. They're delicious. I haven't had one in ages, but like I will stick up for Pop-Tarts in that regard, regardless of the fruits that are in them. They're pretty fucking good. So, you know, it is what it is. Either you want a a fucking Pop-Tart. Fucking sugar out the ass. So, but that's why they work for breakfast. Which is weird because when we were kids, that was breakfast. That's my son. He he eats Pop-Tarts every day. You know, I try to, you know, he do what you do. Not throwing Jason. He's a child on the pod. <laughs> yeah. right, we're wrapping live. things up. Goofs or Goofs episode 91 with our man, our personal friend of the show, a legend, Dog the Bee Hunter, as we call him. An update <laughs> on Dog. As uh, now it came out that the FBI is saying that Dog's sabotaging the hunt for Brian Laundry. <laughs> Of course he is. Of course he is. But he is working with them. He turned over evidence and things like that. So this is just a real life South Park episode. That's why I love it. Where, you know, this is again, the New York Post. Uh, Brian Laundrie, ex-FBI cops, a bounty hunter, dog, the bee hunter, could sabotage search. (laughs) So, you know. Thanks for nothing, dog. Yeah. Before Dwayne Chapman was celebrated as Dog the Bounty Hunter, he was jailed for murder following a pot deal gone bad. And then they go in to tell the story. But, you know, recently he's been wading through Florida swamps hunting Brian Laundry. 
And uh, I guess he, here's the update. Hey, well, he had to postpone as he twisted his ankle, the bee hunt. <laughs> RIP the bee hunter's ankle. <laughs> yeah, he tried, <laughs> but like we said, we were pulling for that because that would have been the best thing ever if dog's the one that gets like the, the most wanted dude in like the last decade through all this. Jesus Christ. This is what we've come to. Uh, as I say to my brohemoth from another mohemoth between Texas fair brawls at French fry stands to yay to Hooters girls, bums, pop tarts and dog, the bee hunter updates. Goofs are goofs. So that's about it for us this week here on episode 90. If you'd like to send something to the show, you have a comment or question or concern about anything, feel free to send us an email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Of course, you can listen to the show each and every week on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and ChurchillPictures.com. And if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to drop us a five-star review. Helps us out, gets more eyes and ears on the program. So uh, before we get out of here, though, I hear the Jay revving it up. So the Jay, take it away. Revving it up like the Jay himself's wearing those new Hooters shorts. Hey, yeah, so the whole world can see the Bajor ass in all its glory. But yeah, love the show, man. Love, as we call it here, the great escape. Steve McQueening it every week on Tuesdays and beyond. Loving my, my time with you, man. Love the show. Shout out as we must to the wizard behind the boards, our man Cam, our producer. Thanks for that crystal clear sound every week, Cam. Still doing it since January 2020. You're the shit, man. We appreciate it. Hey, yeah, leading the charge as I do, like a great general from the past. Stay safe. Stay healthy. If I can get it out, the Jay's always <laughs> crawling past the finish line. You'll hear the Jay next week. So that's it for us this week here on episode 91. Of course, thank you to the Jay uh, for sitting down with me as he does each and every week. I appreciate it, brother. There's nobody else I'd rather do it with. Of course, to our producer, Cam the wizard behind the boards for making us sound great each and every week. Thank you so much for everything you do for us here. And as we know here on the show, nobody beats the whiz. So that's it for us here this week on episode 91 of the what's real podcast. So stay safe, stay healthy, protect your bee hole, get vaccinated. Peace the fuck out. We'll see you here next week on the what's real podcast. What's real?